Blog Talk Radio. was born in August 1958. So was I. Michael Jackson grew up in the suburbs of the Midwest. So did I. Michael Jackson had eight brothers and sisters. So do I. When Michael Jackson was six, he became a superstar and was perhaps the world's most beloved child. When I was six, my mother died. I think he got the shorter end of the stick. I never had a mother, but he never had a childhood. And when you never get to have something, you become obsessed by it. I spent my childhood searching for my mother figures. Sometimes I was successful. But how do you recreate your childhood when you are under the magnifying glass of the world for your entire life? There is no question that Michael Jackson was one of the greatest talents the world has ever known. When he sang a song at the ripe old age of eight, he could make you feel like an experienced adult was squeezing your heart with his words. That the way he moved had the elegance of Fred Astaire and packed the punch of Muhammad Ali. That his music had an extra layer of inexplicable magic that didn't just make you want to dance, but actually made you believe that you could fly, dare to dream, be anything that you wanted to be. Because that is what heroes do, and Michael Jackson was a hero. He performed 
In soccer stadiums around the world, he sold hundreds of millions of records. He dined with prime ministers and presidents. Girls fell in love with him. Boys fell in love with him. Everyone wanted to dance like him. He seemed otherworldly, but he was also a human being. Like most performers, he was shy and plagued with insecurities. I can't say we were great friends, but in 1991, I decided I wanted to try and get to know him better. I asked him out to dinner. I said, my treat, I'll drive, just you and me. He agreed and showed up to my house without any bodyguards. We drove to the restaurant in my car. It was dark out, but he was still wearing sunglasses. I said, Michael, I feel like I'm talking to a limousine. Do you think you could take off those glasses so I can see your eyes? He paused for a moment. Then he tossed the glasses out the window, looked at me with a wink and a smile and said, can you see me now? Is that better? In that moment, I could see both his vulnerability and his charm. The rest of the dinner, I was hell-bent on getting him to eat french fries, drink wine, have dessert and say bad words. Things he never seemed to allow himself to do. Later, we went back to my house to watch a movie and we sat on the couch like two kids and somewhere in the middle of the film, his hand snuck over and held mine. It felt like he was looking for a friend more than a romance, and I was happy to oblige him. And in that moment, he didn't feel like a superstar. He felt like a human being. We went out a few more times together, and then for one reason or another, we fell out of touch. Then the witch hunt began, and it seemed like one negative story after the other was coming out about Michael. I felt his pain. I know what it's like to walk down the street and feel like the whole world is turned against you. I know what it's like to feel helpless and unable to defend yourself because the roar of the lynch mob is so loud that you are convinced your voice can never be heard. But I had a childhood and I was allowed to make mistakes and find my own way in the world without the glare of the spotlight. When I first heard that Michael had died, I was in London days away from the opening of my tour. Michael was going to perform in the same venue as me a week later. All I could think about in that moment was I had abandoned him, that we had abandoned him, that we had allowed this magnificent creature that once set the world on fire to somehow slip through the cracks. While he was trying to build a family and rebuild his career, we were all busy passing judgment. Most of us had turned our backs on him. In a desperate attempt to hold on to his memory, I went on the internet to watch old clips of him dancing and singing on TV and on stage. And I thought, my God, he was so unique, so original, so rare, and there will never be anyone like him again. He was a king. He was also a human being, and alas, we are all human beings, and sometimes we have to lose things before we can truly appreciate them. I want to end this on a positive note and say that my sons, age nine and four, are obsessed with Michael Jackson. There's a whole lot of crotch grabbing and moonwalking going on in my house, and it seems like a whole new generation of kids has discovered his genius and are bringing him to life again. I hope that wherever Michael is right now, he is smiling about this.
Yes. Yes, Michael Jackson was a human being, but damn it, he was a king. Long live the king. Give me a beat, and good evening, everybody, and welcome to the King Jordan Radio Show for Michael Jackson's birthday bash, August 29th, 2014. This is King Jordan you're listening to, and ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the MJ birthday bash where tonight you will hear from Tom Mizero. You will hear from bodyguards, Aphrodite Jones, Matt, and a lot of other guests. First, let me bring in a, one of our guests that seems to be here. He is a former bodyguard of MJ Michael Jackson, the icon. Let me introduce uh, a friend of mine also. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Kerry Anderson. Good evening, Kerry. How are you? Good evening, Jordan. How are you? Pleasure being here, and I thank you for having me again. Oh, it's a, the pleasure is mine on such a uh, such an awesome day. Um, I will. I do want to get back to you, but uh, we're gonna sit back and we're gonna have, hear a live performance, courtesy of uh, Nicole and Scotty, as uh, they are getting set to sing uh, You Are Not Alone. Uh, you know that song, right, Kerry? Oh, absolutely. That's <laughs> one, of, one of the great ones. Yes. So these are, these are kids. So uh, let's take a listen. My producer is telling me that, yes, they are ready. Uh, they're ready? Yes. Okay. Let's sit back and enjoy. Hi, my name is Nicole. I'm Scotty, and we're very proud and honored. You know what? Uh, I believe we had some technical difficulties uh, with uh, Nicole and Scotty's video. We will try to have that later on in the show. I do so much apologize. But, uh, Kerry, what can you say? Uh, it is Michael Jackson, and it is his uh, birthday bash. What is your thoughts on the King of Well, you know, it's kind of bittersweet. I've heard a lot of his music today, and uh, the music is just awesome. And uh, But it also, you know, brings up memories of uh, when I didn't know Michael, and, and then obviously when, when we had, you know, private moments. And uh, like I say, it's bittersweet. I think about... Uh, him all the time. I think about his children, and uh, I just know now that he's in a better place. Thank God we uh, all will get there prayerfully one day. But uh, it's it's a bittersweet thing, you know. I I, I know there is no more pressure. Uh, one of the sad parts that uh, you know you would think about today was when uh, he was going through some of the most difficult times of his life, and uh, as my, Madonna alluded to it seems like a lot of people abandoned him and like she said in that uh, sound piece uh, just before we came on how 
all of the evil kind of drowned out uh, his voice, and he probably felt that no one uh, heard him at times. And I just would reflect back on that, back on that at times, and it just must have been so difficult for him. But you know what? Just uh, thank God that he's in a better place. There's no more contracts. There's no more betrayal. There's no more uh, lies and deceit. And uh, I just, you know, thank God for his music. And and thank God that now it seems like people are coming around and they're really realizing what we had in a person, you know, and how talented and just awesome he was. We also, um, Terry, uh, don't mean to interrupt you, we also do have another former bodyguard, of the icon, Michael Jackson. And uh, let me please introduce to you Mr. Mike Garcia, former bodyguard of Michael Jackson. Mike, from uh, this is King Jordan out of New York. How are you tonight, brother? Doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great. We got Terry Anderson. Uh, I'm sure you know him or heard of him at least. Absolutely. I've seen his work. Okay. Um, so, Terry, continue your thought, please, um, then we'll go to Mike. No, that, that was pretty much it. Like I said, it was like a, a bittersweet day. Uh, you, you hear all of the music, you see some of the videos, and uh, it just bring, brings back moments of uh, some, some of the memories that you had. And, it, it, like I said, it's bittersweet. But the majority of it, uh, I know personally that Michael is in heaven, that he's in a better place now. His uh, music and his legacy will continue to live, and it's just it's an awesome time now because, like I said, he has no more pain, no more contracts, no more betrayals, no more uh, uh, pressure to to succeed, and you know just the pressures of life, the lies and, and the deceit and all of that, you know. So now we can just enjoy his music and just uh, really reflect on what a contribution he made to this earth. And we really need it now in terms of love, especially with all of this stuff going on, you know. Uh, absolutely. I, I want to go to Mike on that. Uh, how do you feel um, in terms of what Terry is saying? Basically, uh, you know, a lot of false allegations, uh, many people say, and a lot of stress with the This Is It concert and all that stuff is, uh, he can rest in peace, Mike. What's your thoughts uh, on that standpoint? I, I agree 100% for what uh, listening here to Terry and just, I mean, the words in which that he's saying is exactly uh, how I feel. And, you know, it, it's, it, he's, he's at rest now. And, and just like Terry alluded to the fact of uh, the pressure and everything, you know, and all the craziness that was going on around him, um, you know, he, he's always going to live on. And right now it, it's really, uh, you know, it's a summer moment right now. And like he said, you know, it's, it's a time in which that his music, you know, the world really needs his music right now. Uh, yes, uh, it's an excellent point. And, uh, of course, Mike, you were with him after he was acquitted on all 14 counts, right? Correct. And, Terry, you were with him actually throughout the trial, right? Yes, I was with him uh, for about a year and a half up after the actual verdict as well. Uh, when we went to the Middle East and to uh, France and uh, London and Oman and, you know, several places in the Middle East. Yeah. That was a bittersweet time, too, as well. I was, thank God he was not uh, 
convicted. I, I thank God justice prevailed and the can judicial system worked, you know. Can you describe a verdict day, Terry? Um, you were there. Can you describe that day, uh, June 13th, 05? Well, it was um, it was a very difficult day on my part, um, and I can only imagine what it was on Michael's part. Uh, I kind of would deal with it in two phases. I had a lot of things logistically to do with regards to his security because the threat level was so high. And uh, I also noticed some things that were, you know, uh, not in my favor as it relates to providing the ultimate protection for him, the kind of cooperation that I had from the uh, uh, law enforcement officials up there. Uh, for some reason, um, I didn't get it the last day. And actually, the last day was uh, when viable threats came in, you know, telling uh, us that, uh, you know, if Michael was acquitted, then that he was going to be, you know, assassinated before he actually reached the vehicle. And um, I had to deal with that. Uh, but I had an inner peace, you know, I try to prepare for it to the best of my ability. And then ultimately I, I know that God protected me because this was out of my hands. I mean, if you really want to do somebody in, in, in life, you can. So you have to have, or what I do is, uh, you know, um, I think about a higher source that ultimately protects me and my faith in God, and and I knew that uh, we were gonna we were gonna be okay. But then the other side, the second side, was Michael. He was devastated. Uh, I remember yeah. when I, you know, actually walked up to the room and told him that it was time to go uh, to court because the verdict had actually been reached. And then you know, there's stories about some of the things that they did. I'll go into it later on some of the things that I tried, that I know that they tried to trip us up on, on on the actual last day as relates to causing us to be delayed and uh, responding to the trial because we actually had a, a, um, a time that we had to be in court once we were notified. And uh, that day, uh, Terry, um, the, the day that uh, he, had, he was in the hospital and uh, everybody made a big deal about saying he had pajamas on. Big deal. But um, what was the story with that? His back was out? I mean, he must have been in some severe pain, right? Yeah, he was in some serious pain. Uh, the night prior. Well, That's not what the people night don't talk about. Early. People don't talk they, about that. They just want to talk about the fact that he was in pajamas. That was the story. They don't tell you how crucial the the poor fellow's back was. Well, I tell you what, if you knew what really happened to him, and I don't know if you've ever experienced a muscle spasm. I have. I played uh, sports in high school, and I had muscle spasms. That was the only time I'd oh, ever uh, uh, Mike knows uh, about this. He follows sports. Right, Mike? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had muscle. I had muscle spasms in college when I played college football, and it's it, just like Terry alluded to. Mike's a football player. That's right. So yeah, how bad is that? Yeah, it'll it'll shock your oh, whole body, and it's nothing to mess the with. The fact that he had what Terry's describing, don't you think it'd be hard to get there, period, let alone in pajamas? Do you think that they put too much emphasis on that stupid? Big deal that he uh, had pajamas on. He was coming from the hospital. He had to rush there. 
Yeah, well, you know, you know how the media is, and Terry could probably tell you the same thing. You know, they don't they don't care what the problem, what why the reason was. They're just going to jump on the fact that he was wearing pajamas, and you know that's what that's basically how you know and that's a pure example of how the media was basically you know nitpicking on him, and um, you know getting any kind of story that they could. Terry, uh, uh, what's yeah. your take? On that? Well, not only was it the media, uh, I, I noticed, you know, from being a former law enforcement officer for uh, 20 years that uh, the prosecution, uh, it, it was just, I couldn't believe some of the things that they had done to this guy. And they were publicly trying to humiliate Michael. And I firmly believe this was one of the times that they did because he was in no shape to respond from a hospital bed with muscle spasms. Now, Kerry, uh, you were there. You That's were there in Santa Barbara, You were there in Santa Barbara. In your opinion, is, are you, is it true about the rumors that Tom Snedden had it out for Michael Jackson? I believe he did, just based on my personal observations, absolutely. He violated all kind of uh, uh, rights as it relates to search and seizure. Uh, I think it was a prosecutorial nightmare. I think he abused his power and... Uh, it, it was a bad anyway, deal. I've never seen anything like that. Even on hardened criminals that are recidivists, that have been in and out of prison, I've never seen people treated like that in court. How uh, so many they, they uh, sheriffs did they send him? The 70 sheriffs? Tom Ezra said, I believe. Yeah, it was 70. Sheriffs. Serial right. killers don't get that. Mike, that was well, made to, to make on, you a bed. Mike, I've been on a, let Micah weigh in on that. I'm sorry, you, you're black. Sheriffs. On this, uh, you know what? Listening to Mr. Jackson afterwards, he uh, it was kind of obvious that he basically was going after him, and maybe maybe the sheriff was kind of going out to make himself a name. Um, and you know, it, it was just it was just really totally blown out of proportion. We had watched, and we we briefly talked to Mr. Jackson on on a trip out to the East Coast about it. And, um, you know, I think basically people were just trying about to... It, uh, when you spoke about it, did uh, this was after he was acquitted, uh, Mike? Yeah, this is after he came back from the Middle East. Okay. So go ahead, yes. Finish your thought, Mike. Um, I just wanted no, to know this. I'm, I'm just wanting, you know, like I said, we just kind of briefly um, discussed it a little bit in the car um, when we were heading out to the East Coast, and it was just basically um, everybody kind of, you know, can kind of uh, get the assumption that these guys basically had it out for Mr. Jackson. They wanted, like Terry said, they wanted to humiliate him. Um, you know, Mr. Jackson's not a not a confrontational guy, and they'll definitely they were trying to get him as as much as possible. Um, definitely too much. Um, too much going on in that in that whole little scenario. I can't comment too much on it because I wasn't there. Terry, you know, I guess he, he can give you the more detail. But um, you, but you know, were with, you were with Jackson, you were with Mike, so you had a feel. And yeah. like you said, uh, here right here on the show, you have a very good judge of character because you're a bodyguard. That's your job, right? Right, right. So, so you know what's going on. And I want to bring up, Mike, that show you were on with Diane Diamond and uh, Brian Smith, Steve Manning, right. and the guy from uh, Rolling Stones. You know, Diane Diamond kept saying, like, uh, 
pretty pretty hard stuff, I would say, for for a man that's passed away and a man that was acquitted. Your take? Absolutely, absolutely. And I couldn't. It was I was you know as you watched the video, I was getting a little agitated. I was trying to keep my cool as far as the way that she was speaking. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and we, you know, we kind of had a brief discussion prior to that, and she, uh, you know, about, you know, what kind of the things in which that we we're going to be talking about. But, you know, of course, when the light, when the camera goes rolling, she, um, you know, she basically tried to pull out all the daggers and, and whatnot. And, you know, she, I didn't, I, you know, I never really knew too much of her work prior to that and really seeing the way that she really kind of went after him. And just like you said, after, after Mr. Jackson had already passed, it was just, it was distasteful to me. Uh, Terry, weigh in. I didn't really hear about the interview. I, I had uh, experiences with Diane Diamond uh, during the actual trial, and she had just a, a venom, and like, yes, just she just hated Michael Absolutely. Jackson, and I, and I don't understand. I sometimes I, I didn't. I was. It was like, are these people <laughs> just trying to represent? Um, you know their networks, and, and they they have taken a position of he he's guilty already before he's even uh, tried, and before the the trial has been adjudicated, and it was just terrible. That it's how a person could have that much venom and distaste and and hate for a person that is Absolutely. so loving and kind and Absolutely. nurturing, and you know is is so he gives to charitable organizations, and he's never done anything. But it gets back to I think uh, negativity and. The, the pedophile thing that sells, especially with the the biggest star in the that world, sells, right? You know, right? And right. Uh, that you just think Diane Diamond wouldn't, you wouldn't even know her name had it not been for that trial and and her stance against That's Michael tough. Jackson. Yeah, so, you're very right now. I didn't even know who she was until she started yeah. with the trial. I really, I, yeah, I had I no idea who that woman was. That was Mike. Yeah, Wait, you want to begin? That was basically her big break right there, I guess. And he, just like what he said, you know, she's very venom. I mean, and I saw a real conniving way about her as she was talking because one minute, you know, she's pulling out the daggers and the next minute she's kind of, you know, trying to act like, you know, like that she really cared for Mr. Jackson. And, um, you know, I hope she sleeps well at night. You know, uh, Terry and uh, Mike, uh, this guy, Stacy Brown, who claimed to be a friend of the Jackson family during the 2005 trial, uh, he recently wrote an article in the Post calling him uh, via the maids, saying that he is the messiest person on earth and that he did molest kids. What do you think of this guy, Stacy Brown, and his comments one uh, one breath saying he knows the Jackson family, and on the other breath, on the other breath, selling newspaper articles with Michael Jackson's name. Let's start with Mike. I think he's one of the many that that you know that, that try to get their name out there. Um, he was never around when we were, you know, when I was with Mr. Jackson at, at all. And um, you know, like he, like like Terry just said, you know, I, it's amazing how people can have that much hate and that much venom against somebody who gave everything to the world and had a heart you know, pure as gold. Um, you know, I, I believe that there, as time will go on, there will be more attention seekers and, and, and false accusations, you know, as time, as time prevails, you know, maybe in the 10-year anniversary or whatnot. But, you know, that's, that's the sad part of it. You know, that's the sad part of, of, of what people do. And everybody from Diane Diamond to this gentleman, you know, that, we, that we're speaking about, it, it just seems never to end. But, um, you know, I, 
it's amazing. It's amazing. And just like I told Diane Diamond, you know, if you, if you knew Mr. Jackson and the heart and, and you know, and the heart and the soul that he had, there's no way that you would even assume or even want to say anything, you know, in, the, in that kind of regard. Uh, weigh in on Diane Diamond, Carrie. Well, I, you know, I don't have too much to say about those people because I think when you mention their names, you're giving them some kind of platform or, Absolutely. you know, forum, and I don't really think they, they deserve it. And, and the same thing with this uh, Stacey Brown character. Uh, I just feel oh, you yeah. people that will do anything for money and, and greed, and the majority of the people that had some kind of credibility, Michael blessed those people. It kind of reminds me of the uh, maid that worked in his home, and her son had cancer, and the medical coverages that Michael uh, had in his company for the employees didn't cover that kid's cancer, and Michael paid $80,000 for that kid cover him, you know, whatever the deficiency was with the medical insurance. Michael paid money for that child, which is that lady's son, and he ultimately survived the cancer, and then that lady stole a sketch from him and sold it to Star Magazine or something like that, and then had the audacity to try to testify against Michael in the trial. And, and Tom Mesro, the brilliant lawyer, the, to me the, one of the best lawyers in the world, he filleted this lady, and, and rightfully so. But people are, are terrible, man, when they, when they are greedy and, and they don't love and they're just, they do unto others as you would, you know, Absolutely. not have them. It's Absolutely. just unbelievable what people will do, and and you're not going. This is not going to be the last of it. I think uh, this Wade guy and this whoever this other character is that are coming up with these allegations. It's just un, unconscionable what what people will do. You know, um, it's terrible. It really is. Absolutely, I agree, I agree with you. Mike, this Wade guy he was mentioning. Um, you know, he wrote things in the, uh, there was a special portrait where he wrote stuff. For 20 years, he said, he praised him. He called him the best friend. I mean, doesn't sound like somebody that, that was molested. He really actually went under oath and swore on the Bible that nothing happened. What is your thoughts when you hear about a claim like that? You know, like, like we said in the Good Morning America interview, you know, if you knew Mr. Jackson, you knew his heart, and you knew you knew the way that he cared about people. Um, you know, there's no way in which you could believe in something like that. And people people take advantage of you know the weak. Uh, you know, it, it, I'm not saying Mr. Jackson's weak, but it's just in the sense of that Mr. Jackson was a confrontation. He was a heart of gold, and people you know yes. want to take think they can they can you know get away with that kind of thing. You know, those kind of things and. Like he said, it's unconscionable that the way that people think and and the evil in them that that make them do the things like that against people like Mr. Jackson. Uh, Terry, uh, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't know. I I just like I say, uh, I, I just can't believe sometimes the way people act in certain things that they do. And uh, the thing is, is uh, you know, Martin Luther King had a statement. He says, truth crushed to earth will one day rise again. And, you know, all of the stuff that they put through uh, Michael Jackson when he lived on earth, they didn't appreciate him. Um, I 
firmly believe that they took years off of that man's life. I saw him set up and just being miserable, couldn't sleep, he couldn't eat, you know, he couldn't think about what he was supposed to be thinking about, which is blessing the world and taking care of his family and his children. And they took that from him. You know, those those people don't understand when they come up with these false allegations and crazy things what they're actually doing, not only to him, but the people that he's responsible for. And right. it's, uh, it, it, it ultimately will come out. You know, thank God there's fans all over the world that know the man's heart. You have people, there's people right now that are putting out amazing websites. Deborah Kunis, she's putting out an amazing website. There's um, Jolanda in, in the Netherlands that's putting out some very positive information about it, and it's just permeating the world. And, and you know, right, Michael Jackson's going to be more famous even now, you know. Absolutely. MJUpbeat.com definitely does that. Uh, JNDNewYork.com. There's uh, so many good fan supporters, Terry. Absolutely, and they're the all over the world. And they're, they're very good at what they do. They're, they're, they're basing it on facts, and they're disproving this stuff over social media, which is an awesome tool, you know. Right. Good will always prevail. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, Mike, I don't think you like the hologram that much. Is that accurate? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really care for it. You know what I mean? It was just, you know, I, I, when, it comes to, when it comes to Mr. Jackson and the type of person he, you know, he was and what he meant to the world, you know, people have to be very, to me, in my opinion, people just have to be a little bit more um, careful with, with his legacy. You know, and and people right. not taking it into their own hands to to feel you know or to to showcase Mr. Jackson a certain way or whatnot. To me, that didn't look like him. Um, you know, it was. I mean, the, maybe the thought was nice, but at the end of the day, right. you know, everybody everybody has to be you know responsible for this man's legacy, and and you know that's why I I just praise about the great things that in which that he did, um, and and keep you know keep it simple and things like that because who 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 on this man's legacy as you know as time goes on. Uh Kerry, what about the uh the thing they did, the hologram for uh MJ uh back a few months back? What was your thoughts you know, on uh, the whole that, whatever the show it was, it was a show and my wife is such a big fan. She loved it. Um but and I saw the re I, I didn't really see it at length. I saw a little piece of it, but I saw the reaction of the fans in the audience, and they seemed to be uh, thoroughly enjoying it. However, what I would do is I would leave it up to uh, Paris, Prince, and Blanket and the family, and if if they signed off on it, then who am I to say, you know, uh, (laughs) things that they can do with technology. I understand that the Super Bowl, he's going to be the performer on the Super Bowl, and I guess somebody from the estate would have had to have approved that, you know, so... I'm thinking if if, you if pay they sign the off on it, if it doesn't, I'm sorry. <laughs> you got to pay now. They're saying to to run a, your uh, band for the halftime thing. They're charging artists now. So if you're right, then the estate would have to flip the bill for that. <laughs> oh wow! I don't know. I don't know how that turns out. I, I just wouldn't want anything to to you know uh, affect the grieving process. Right. of the the children and if 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 it does them good then I say by all means do it. Um but but if not then I would say you stay away from it. 
Absolutely. Everything needs to be signed off by, the, by just like what Terry said about the, you know, has to be signed off by the estate or the family. Uh, yes, I totally uh, agree with you, Mike and uh, Terry, on uh, that point. Um, let me ask you, uh, Mike, uh, about this new album, Escape. Uh, we spoke about it a little bit. Um, what's your take on the, uh, the album? and it coming out in the first place? Um, I think we're always going to have music coming out by Mr. Jackson. Right? And, and uh, you know, my take on it is that from the response in which I'm getting from the fans that have written to me, they, um, you know, Mr. Jackson's fans, they, they love it, you know. And it's good really to hear, you know, even in the commercial, you know. Um, you know yeah, the keep commercial. Yeah, you know, and, and just hearing his voice, you know, and, and, and you know, and, being able to hear that in you know that spirit again, it's to me it's you know it's really refreshing. So um, you know I never I didn't travel with Mr. Jackson at the time where he did any shows. I'm not sure if Terry did, but um, you know it, it's just really nice just to just to hear his voice and, and just being you know enlightened by it. So as far as like the album coming out and music, um, you know I, I'm I'm all for it. And you know according to the fans, you know they love it as well. There's a few that 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 rather have just the originals because uh and there's a few that say mm, we don't know if Michael would want that out what do you, what do you say about that mike um you know the, and then that comes to like kind of like what I was talking about as far as legacy you know everything it, 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 Lee, he, the guy was you know anybody trying to imitate his style or anything like that, and the, you know at the end of the day, the fans are going to tell the difference um but um, you know, if 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 like we said, the state and also you know the children you know signed off on it, then I hope you know it goes to the best you know hope you know the best for it. But if not, then you know it's just another you know somebody trying to you know ride ride his coattails again or you know trying to do something you know to to make a profit or whatnot. But it, overall, like I said, it's just it's just really good to hear his voice. Uh, Terry, I want to go to you on this. Uh, the Escape album, uh, they, it was at number one in the beginning. It's doing well. Uh, he's gone. He's not here to say, you know what? I, I didn't want this to come out. Uh, is it a is it a good uh, thing, bad thing? What's your take on uh, new Michael Jackson material coming out? Well, I, I don't know the process, and I mean, obviously, it's his voice. I don't think anybody could mimic him that that well. But and I am such a fan, man. I love to hear his stuff come out, and uh, I think it's it's awesome. Like I said, if if it doesn't impact the kids, and that is their father, and they have to continue to live, and if it's generating income for them as well, I think that uh, it, it should be a, a green light to to do it. Uh, the fans want to hear his music, I, I would assume. I know I'm a fan, and I love, I haven't heard the whole album, but the couple of songs that I <laughs> that I heard, those are awesome songs, man. And um, I love them. I don't, good is really, the one, the commercial that Mike was talking about before, uh, Love Never Felt So Good is an awesome song. Yeah, <laughs> I really enjoyed it, you know. Um, it's like, why, why should something sit up in some kind of archive and just wither away. And then not only right. that, it gets back to the people that tried to destroy Michael Jackson. It ain't going to happen. He's going right. to be more famous now than he is. And I hope the music continues if, you know, 
the, the family signs off on it. And if, and when I say that, I'm I'm talking specifically, you know, uh, Paris Prince and Blanket. Those are some very intelligent kids. I always I, I would sit up and see Prince read books like you would not believe. That kid is brilliant and. Like I said, I, I'm sure he knows finances because I, I know Michael taught those kids everything. He was an awesome dad. I saw that. That's right. That's right. And uh, if if those children sign off on it, they're at an age now where they they know business, and I know Prince does. I, you know, Harrison Blanket <laughs> might be still a little young, but those kids are brilliant. And if if they sign off on it, uh, and it doesn't impact the grieving process, and it enables them to prolong their dad's legacy, then by all means, you know, what what Satan tried to do and destroy him with these idiots of this world, the Diane Diamonds and some of these other people, it didn't happen. Right. And it's not going to happen. Brown, you know? Nancy Grace, Stacy Brown, Nancy Grace, Diane Diamond, the Maureen Orff. There's, yeah. uh, there's a whole list of them. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, it no, it, it it was awful. Uh, some of the the things that uh, MJ had to go through. It's yeah, amazing. It really, it really was. People don't know what that. they put that man through. It's so sad to see a a man broken that was so powerful and enamored by by the world. But if you could see him in the private moments and how you know dejected he was at times, and it was only by the grace of God that he survived. Uh, through that whole period, you know, I, I believe God put certain people in his life at the time to, you know, get him through that. And uh, I think that I was instrumental in that. You know, it wasn't just the physical. I'm not the big. I'm not a big guy like Mike. I'm a little guy, you know. And uh, but the power of God, man. I tell you, I had a higher source protecting us because I wasn't worried about a thing. And I and I bowed to him. I told him, you know, and the day I um went up to his room and told him that the you know, they've got the verdict. It was a that was the most challenging day of my life. It's like, God, you gotta help me 'cause Michael was like not having it and, and the emotion and the kids running and screaming it's like, Oh my God But we dealt with it and, and thank God, you know, we prevailed. I told him, I said, Man, you trust God. Don't trust nobody else, trust God. You're gonna That's be right. back in your ranch within two hours. I guarantee it. And uh I was just speaking what I believe that God told me, and it worked out. Thank God, man. You know, and uh, he went on and and did great things after that. Uh, were so, you in the Were you in the uh, van when it was verdict day, Mike? Kerry. Uh, oh yeah, he didn't go anywhere without me during that period. Yeah, I was right there with him, and that was a whole other story. I won't go into that. That's that's gonna be a and that that's some things I'll take to to my grave. You know, some of the moments that uh, to and from the court and, you know, it, it was just something. On on a brighter note, there were some of the people that never got credit. Because there was a lot of people like Madonna alluded to in that, that uh, statement she read. Um, a lot of people abandoned him, man. But there was a couple of people that, you know, I heard him have some conversations with Celine Dion, Whitney Houston, uh, Damon Wayans, Steve Harvey, those guys really pumped him up, you know, and uh, I didn't know those are not the biggest celebrities in the world, you know, especially as it relates to Steve Harvey and, and Damon Wayans, but then those guys really pumped him up a couple of times on the way to court when he was down. And, I mean, he was physically – that stuff will impact your body so much, your your 
physical body will break down. Michael was really sick, and he knew that Judge Melville's position was, if you're that sick, then you're going to go to the infirmary, infirmary, and we'll remand your bail, and you'll stay in custody until the trial is over. Well, it's like, how can you tell a guy not to get sick? That's see, that's the, the, the side that, you know, I'm going to talk about later on that, it was just horrible the way they did this man. You know, it's publicly they just wanted to humiliate him. And, you know, we're, we're pulling off at the off-ramp, and he's physically sick. You know, but we got to continue as opposed to going right to the hospital. we got to go to court because the guy is saying, no, you're not going to, if you're sick, then we're going to, you know, take your bail, and we're going to remand you into custody for the remainder of the trial. Well, we were a month into it then, you know, and it was wow. it was just terrible. It it really was. But uh, like I said, he he prevailed. Thank God that <laughs> God is merciful. You know. Well, my there must have been some, uh, you know, uh, riding that van that day probably was scary. Uh, if you're Michael Jackson and you have your life in the hands of twelve jurors that might not you know, see the truth for what it is. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be in that position. I really wouldn't. Uh, I know I can imagine. I heard a documentary the other day how he said he couldn't get sleep. He would wake up in just horrific nightmares just thinking about being convicted, going to jail. And, oh, uh, you I know, think anybody would. Oh, you my have, God, you I know I would. Hands, uh, I tell you that. It's in the I don't ever want to so it's yeah. it's a really uh, tough spot to be in, but uh, it is. The other, yeah, the other thing, Mike, I wanted to ask you about: um, how is Michael Jackson the father? You were there. Mr. Jackson, the father was amazing. Yeah, I mean, amazing. Just like just like Terry was saying earlier about it, as far as you know, how brilliant the children are, and that's that's the result of Mr. Jackson. You know, he's very big on their education. He was there one, you know. Uh, Every minute of the day for these children, and I think I've, I think I've said before in, in an interview, basically that um, you know when we were staying out in Virginia for a couple months, we had food catered, and he didn't want the breakfast to be catered cause, because he wanted to wake up every morning and make the children breakfast every morning. You know, so when we get to the house, 8 a.m., 9 o'clock in the morning, you know, to get an itinerary for the day, he would have jelly and you know, all, you know, breakfast stuff on his shirt. So you could see that he was just doing, you know, he was doing the, the daddy duties. And, um, you know, right. when we go and we go, to, we go to see something um, educational, you know, when we went down, when we were in DC and then we went down to the Smithsonian, um, you know, after we got done doing the whole tour and whatnot, we get back into the car. And first thing, you know, Mr. Jackson is doing is, is he quizzing the kids on the things in which that we saw. Um, you know, he was doing things like that nature. And then, you know, then you had the times in which that, you know, we, I remember when we went to go see the David Copperfield uh, show over at the MGM, and we're walking through, you know, the downstairs part of the casino, the hotel, and, you know, Mr. Jackson making sure the kids all said thank you and, you know, and hello to everybody that were saying hi and, and, and whatnot and Merry Christmas. So he was definitely, you know, very, very hands-on with three, you know, with three kids. And he, uh, you know, he did an amazing job, amazing job. And I used to take the kids by myself over to Circus Circus, you know, and, and he, would, he would be calling my phone every two minutes, you know, just making sure that, you know, he, he would ask, you know, how are they doing, this and that. And then he'd say, you know, hey, you know, Mike, 
are, are they acting up? Are they doing anything wrong? Or this? No, not at all, Mr. Jackson. And then, you know, then we go about, you know, so he was really, uh, you know, a tremendously great father. Uh, and you, Kerry, also were there as Mike, Michael was a father. Uh, give me your uh, take on Michael Jackson, the father. Oh, I echo the same thing that Mike said. I mean, he, he, he hit the nail right on the head. He was an amazing dad. You know, you talk about a parent. He, he was the ultimate uh, single parent. Uh, he was a disciplinarian. And it was interesting just to see Michael discipline the kids, you know, but they were disciplined, man. Uh, uh, you know, nothing other than what, what discipline should be. But uh, they would have time out. He would chastise them. Uh, Blanket was notorious for getting, you know, uh, you know his little uh, chastisement, you know. But they they were awesome. But as as far as education, I have seen those kids, especially Prince. I have seen Prince sit up and read a book. I saw him sit on a staircase and just read a book for hours, and he was like, "This is no big deal," you know. You know like a little he, man. Uh, it, it was amazing. He's an amazing dad. You know, he loved those kids. He had fun with them. Uh, it's interesting. I saw him, uh, he was into their physical fitness as well. I saw Prince in Paris on a treadmill one morning. We're working out in Bahrain. I got up early one morning. I usually got up early and tried to get up early so they would have the, you know, the place to themselves so much. And uh, they were up early on treadmills, all three of them. You know, it's like, wow. But uh, he, he was an amazing dad. You know, he, he really was. Um, that's all I can say about it, you know. And I, and I, and I just want to add in also, you know, just from working with, with other celebrities and stuff, and, you know, he, what Mr. Jackson definitely was was doing and, and doing and being a lot more involved with his children than some of the people in which I've seen in Hollywood and whatnot. And, it, you know, that, that's, that really speaks volumes about him, you know, and he was – he he didn't want them to to grow up to be um, you know spoiled. He didn't want them to be you know he wanted to be polite. He wanted them to show manners. You know he was really big on really molding these children to be great kids. And Kerry, uh, uh, that's what he was basically, right? A good father. Oh yeah, well I try to be. I'm gone a lot, but I'm I'm gonna always be here for mine. I got a little grandson now, so he's he's uh I tell you, my Michael is a is a model he was a model dad from what I saw. I tell you, he was my dad. I look up to my dad and uh I raised my children like you know, I saw my dad, but I also raised my kids like Michael raised his. Michael was an awesome dad. He really was. You know, you got the biggest guy star in the world. Like I said, I've I've worked for other entertainers that were uh not as big as Michael, but they were well-known, and they treated their kids like crap. I, I could tell you some stories where I won't go into them, but it, it, was, it, it is ugly. I mean, the nannies basically raised the kids. You know, I don't even know why these people had kids, the way right. they were treating these kids, because the, 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 the nannies would virtually raise these kids. You know, it was, the kids were like a showpiece for the celebrity when, you know, they they wanted to go out and do the – you know, red carpet or whatever with them, but as far as actually raising the kid and, and providing a, a a balanced, wholesome life for them, 
Michael was exemplary with that. You know, he really was. I agree. And, uh, yeah, do you agree with that, Mike? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just amazing. Just like he said, as far as, like, you know, your your single father, he, he above and beyond, above and beyond. I mean, he just definitely um, the model single father who just did everything, you know, and I wish people could have saw that about him. And, and I'm sure the kids, you know, they, they really probably, they probably look back upon that a lot. And, uh, you know, just how involved he was with them and how, how much, how patient he was with them, and, you know, especially with, you know, a little blanket. And he was just so, you know, so nurturing and so caring and just really, really great people. Okay. Um, the next topic, uh, as we hear, though, but uh, Kerry, um, can you share on this 56th birthday of Michael Jackson a memory that warms to your heart uh, on this day of his birthday? Can you share that with our listeners? Uh, yeah, one thing that you know I'll never forget as long as I live, it was a Christmas. And uh, Michael told me, he gave me a list. I still have all the lists that he's hand wrote or he wrote out for me to go and get people. He says, Carrie, I got a very special friend and he does a lot of traveling. He's got, uh, he needs the best computer. I need you to go and get the best computer and uh, get everything with it. I want him to be able to do everything, run the office from this particular, uh, with, with the, the product that you, with this gift, this Christmas gift. And, uh, get the best one. So I did that. I went and, went and got the best computer and um, the best printer and everything was, it was all inclusive. It fit in the little briefcase and everything. And he said, make sure you wrap it real good too. Put a beautiful wrapping on it. And then, you know, we'll just give it to him on Christmas. Well, uh, it was coming up on Christmas and I lived actually an hour and a half, about two hours from, from where we uh, where we were at the time, and he told me he wanted me to go home and be home with my family for Christmas, and he was going to be at, you know, Neverland, and everything was going to be okay. He says, if I need you, I'll be, I can get back there in 45 minutes or so. Well, anyway, so we exchanged gifts. Actually, I didn't exchange gifts because I didn't, I got him cards and the kids' cards, but when when I left, the kids came up to me with that box, and that computer that he bought was from me, and I'll never will forget that because he described me as, you know, a special friend of his. So that gift that I purchased that I went out and got and Michael told me to get was it, to get was actually mine. So I never will forget that as long as I live. That really touched my heart, and I still have that computer to this day. I went over to the Middle East and did some security work, and I carried it with me, and and I'm looking at it right now. I'm in Houston, Texas, in, in my house, and I have that computer, and I'll, I always will, you know. But it was the, the, what he said, and, and that's the kind of person he was. That, that's the whole thing about how he was so misrepresented in the latter part of his life that just breaks your heart, you know, how somebody could be so vilified and looked upon so bad at times when he was the most beautiful person in the world. You couldn't make him hurt anything. I remember Michael, he, right. he, he vowed we, we couldn't carry guns. We could not carry weapons. 
And that was some of the really? – he would ask me things about that. You know, Carrie, you ever killed anybody? You you were a policeman for this long? You ever did – I said, well, yeah, Mike, I, I did this and I did that. Like, uh, at times I thought, like, this guy's going to fire me. <laughs> but it happened, you know, but I told him the necessity for it and the reason for it. And, yes. and, and he kind of understood, but it was like – he, he wasn't into those hurt, you know, guns and hurting people. He was into love and, and spreading love and taking care of the underprivileged and the voiceless. And, and he was an awesome person, man, and, and it's going to come out. It, it, it really is. Like I said, you saw what this world tried to do to him and, and the evil media, and I'm not saying all of them because some of them weren't, but um, – He's an awesome. He he was an awesome human being, you know, and his legacy will live forever, you know. But that was one uh, of the Mike. That I'll, can I'll you uh, share a memory on this 56th birthday of MJ for our listeners? I, I remember when we were uh, we were in New Jersey and it was his birthday, and um, he had uh, he was staying with a friend, and we, we we got into the car and you know we was, we, we pulled up to the the first stop sign, and then we all kind of just turned around and just started singing happy birthday to him and stuff, and he really appreciated it. He got a kick out of that and whatnot. And it was, you know, it, 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 you know, every time his birthday comes around, that's something that I always think about, you know, sitting there at the, on the street at that stop sign, you know, and just turning around and just singing happy birthday to him, and the kids were there, and the kids were singing as well and whatnot, and, uh, you know, every every time there's, you know, like I said, his birthday comes around. That's that's something special that I always will, you know, I always cherish, you know, and, and just, uh, you know, great great fond memory uh, of that. And, and I'm glad I'm glad that you know to be a part of that that whole situation. Uh, no question. I got to ask you guys: um, Were you a fan of uh, Michael Jackson music? I'll start with you, Carrie. Was I a fan of Michael Jackson's music? Oh, absolutely! Man. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I, I got I I love all of his music. You know, I, I really do. Uh, my wife's a fan. My daughter's a fan. <laughs> my grandson's a fan now. You know, but absolutely. You know, I grew up. Uh, I'm 53 years old, so Michael Jackson was it, man, my whole life, and he still is. You know, but I loved all of his music. I loved the Jackson Five music. And I love the, the, you know, when he went on and, and went solo. I, yeah, absolutely, I'm a fan. Uh, how about you, Mike? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I, I grew up, you know, I, I grew up in Hawaii. And uh, I remember growing up as a kid, and in Hawaii it doesn't get below 70 degrees or 75 degrees. But I had to have the Thriller jacket. You know, I have, and I and I and I and I would, and until to this day, I still have it. You know, and and uh, you know, it's still in great condition because I wouldn't wear it. I would just wear it to wherever I need to go, and then I would just. It was like one of my most prized possessions, and I remember when I was probably, oh man, I'm not even sure how old it was, but I know it was in elementary school, and um, I was going to a classmate's birthday party and got her. A, you know, the Michael Jackson album where he's laying down holding the tiger, it was on the album, you know, and uh, I remember, you know, I, I thought that was like the best gift that I could give somebody at that time, 
And then, uh, you know, and, and as I got older, you know, when Mr. Jackson came to Hawaii to perform, you know, he came to Hawaii to perform. And, um, you know, I grew up right next to Aloha Stadium right there in Hawaii. And he, uh, he and I had to work that night. And I, and I, and I, and I just, it was such a blessing to, 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 I came out, you know, my house. I, I could hear him. I could hear the show. I could hear the show going on. And I stood next to my car, you know, and I just sat there and I was just listening to it. And I was just, you know, thinking to myself, like, man, I wish I was out there. You know, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm a kid who was telling, I was a kid who was telling his mother growing up, we would go to like a hardware store and I'd say, let's get that white glove and, and sew some beads into it or something. You know what I mean? Because I, I had to have the glove too, you know. And, <laughs> and I just stood there and I listened to the concert going on and stuff and it was such a blessing that we were on our way to the movies one time, and I got a chance to tell him that, to tell him about how I was standing there, you know, next, you know, outside the stadium and stuff, and I could still hear him playing. And, and you know, he you know, he laughed, and he was just like, really? You, really, you, you could hear me? And I was like, yeah, Mr. Jackson. I said, I, I, man, so you don't know how bad I wanted to be in there to see you, you know, to see you perform, you know, and things. And he's like, you know, he, he really got a kick, you know, the fact that I was, you know, here we are, you know, sitting in the car, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, just funny how, you know, how, how, how God works and makes us, you know, full circle. And, and, um, and it was, man, I, Mr. J- I mean, Mr. Jackson's music was it for me. I mean, it, I mean, I, 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 it, I, it's still vivid. I'm 40 years old now and it's still vivid to where I was sitting down and watching him do that moonwalk, you know, on, on TV. I remember sitting in front of the TV watching that and just, just amazed and just, Man, he was he was it for me, you know. And that's why I said, you know, still to this I day, just, I tell. Uh, I just got a I just got a note here. Um, I do have uh, the defense attorney for my MJ, uh, Mike and Terry. You can uh, hang around if you want for a little bit. Um, he defended Michael Jackson in 2005, and uh, the, the charges, and he was acquitted on all 14 counts. He's a regular to this uh, show. He joins us for the Michael Jackson birthday bash. I'm talking about the one and only Tom Mesero. Good evening, Tom. How are you? It's King Jordan. I'm doing fine, uh, Jordan. Uh, thanks for having me again. I always enjoy it. And uh, you're a real loyal supporter of Michael Jackson, and I admire you for it. And thanks for having me again. Okay, you're on the phone with Kerry Anderson, bodyguard, and uh, Mike Garcia. Well, how are you doing, guys? Hi, Ke- Hi, Kerry and Mike. Nice to talk to you. Hey, Tom. How are you doing? Pleasure how to meet you. Doing all right. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, yes, uh, so how's everything with you, Tom? Everything's fine. Just busy. You know, uh, Susan, you and I run our, our law firm in Los Angeles, and uh, we get a lot of calls. We're very blessed with business, and uh, life is fine. I'm not complaining about anything. Yeah, we were talking earlier about the media and Diane Diamond in particular and Stacey Brown. Now, um, Stacey Brown did say some unflattering things uh, via his Twitter account about you, as I told you. Um, And I'll just bring that up to date so the listeners know what I'm talking about. Somehow the link of something of the show... Uh, got linked to Stacey Brown, and he replied words to the effect of Tom Mesero saved the pedophile. 
words to that effect. I, I want to get your response on that. Well, if, if Stacy Brown uh, doesn't like me, uh, that makes me feel very good. Um, <laughs> Stacy Brown, <laughs> you know, uh, I'd like more enemies like that. Um, Stacy Brown, <laughs> Stacy Brown, uh, in my opinion, based on everything I saw and heard, was in the prosecution's pocket during the 2005 trial. Uh, he wanted right. Michael Jackson convicted. He wanted him convicted. Um, uh, he published this ridiculous book that was one of the most poorly written books I've ever read uh, towards the end of the trial. I think the timing was designed to hurt Michael Jackson and increase the chances he would be convicted. And uh, he was no friend of the family as as far as I'm concerned and no friend of Michael Jackson. That's my opinion. And he seemed in utter shock when Michael Jackson was acquitted. In fact, I think he went on court TV and used the words that, you know, I'm shocked. Uh, I was told by someone else that he was with the prosecutor when they called Gavin Arvizo to let him know that Michael Jackson had been acquitted. That's what I was told. I'm not, I wasn't there. I don't really know. But as far as I'm concerned, he was one of Michael Jackson's enemies. He wanted him convicted from everything I saw. And um, he's no friend of mine, and I'm no friend of his. And I don't even think he's worthy to be called a journalist. I think he's a wannabe, wannabe tabloid reporter. <laughs> yes, I second that motion. Uh, Stacy Brown called himself a friend of the family to him during the uh, trial back in 05. Uh, was, do you know any uh, information like that? If he was a friend, uh, he certainly wasn't a good friend because of the negative uh, things he did and said. Uh, maybe some I, of the family members, at least. I have never understood how he could call himself a friend of the family. Um, and right. if, family members, if family members have continued to talk to him, uh, I don't understand why they would do that. He clearly wanted Michael convicted. He clearly skewered his reporting and his, his statements about the case to see Michael Jackson convicted. That was my impression. He was not objective, and I think his testimony uh, and the book he wrote were all designed to help the prosecution. That was my opinion. You know, I've never, uh, to my knowledge, ever met the person, and nor do I want to. He's a, yeah, I consider him you know, a bottom yeah. He and yeah. Diane Diamond are, are clones of each other. Oh, Diane Diamond for sure. Diane Diamond, another one. Was was not Diane Diamond sued by MJ in uh, in the nineties? Yes, she sued. Uh, M, uh, Michael Jackson sued Diane Diamond, I believe, for libel or slander or both. And Tom Snedden rose to her defense, uh, submitted a declaration, and I think the case was eventually dismissed. Very so interesting and. The fact that she had been sued by Michael Jackson and they still used her as a reporter, I always found very troubling. Why would Court TV, uh, a, a, an organization that had a very strong reputation and a very unique name uh, in the field of coverage of trials, why would they name their chief reporter, you know, someone who Michael Jackson had sued? I think that was an invitation to get very unobjective reporting. And I think that's what happened. Uh, I happen to agree with you. I mean, long after he's he's been dead, they're they're coming out with stories. It's like, is it really important for Stacey Brown to publish a story about MJ after he's been gone? 
And after this maid already, I think you cross-examined her, if I'm not correct, said some nasty things about Michael. Well, I just don't understand, you know, he ought to get a life, in my opinion. And, you know, publishing something like he just did, uh, allegedly quoting maids and saying, you know, disparaging things about Michael Jackson, I, what's the point? It's almost like he's, uh, he can't let go of the subject matter because he has nothing else to do. And I've, I've always felt that Stacey Brown and Diane Diamond both feel that their careers were shattered when Michael Jackson was acquitted. Uh, I really f- always felt that they built their career on this man being convicted and then their being valuable to various news outlets, media outlets um, uh, in the future because they could comment on his rise and fall. That was always my perception. Um, and I think their careers fell apart when he was acquitted on every single charge, 10 felonies and four lesser-included misdemeanors. Uh, I think, it, was, I think it, shattered, it shattered their their belief in what their futures would be. That's, that's my opinion. It's just based on my perception of the two of them. Absolutely. Now, Mike, you, you were with Diane Diamond, and she was uh, pretty negative on that show uh, during the Murray trial. Well, what's your take on what Tom is saying? I, you know, I agree. I, it, it, you know, let, let's sit here listen to uh, listen to him speak. It, 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 in my thoughts, I'm kind of thinking that maybe she was, with this interview in which that, she, that I was there at, that maybe she was trying to, you know, vilify herself and try to get her respect back. Um, you know, and, and um, you know, I, I just, I just don't have nothing. Like Terry alluded earlier, you know, it, it, to me, it, she's not even worth talking about. And she's just, she's just, you know, she's something else. Uh, Terry, let's get your take on it on Diane Diamond. You were there. You were in the. You saw. You saw her news reporting. What's your take, Terry Brown? Uh, uh, I I don't know. I just thought that she had a personal vendetta because she was not reporting the facts. You know, like I say, Tom would do an amazing job and just fillet the uh, prosecution's witnesses and everything, you know, under cross-examination. And then you'd get out and see Diane Diamond reporting that, oh, their testimony was so damaging, and which was totally a lie. And I don't know, it just looked like uh, I was not privy to that information that Michael sued her. But it looks like she had a personal vendetta against him, and uh, she didn't do an ethical job in terms of uh, reporting what she actually saw, you know, I think a journalist should have uh, some kind of level of, you know, some kind of standard that they should have and follow and abide by, you know, and she didn't do that along with a couple of others, but she was definitely a ringleader of it, I tell you. And, you know, um, uh, you... Excuse yeah. me, go ahead. No, no, finish your thought. You know, uh, I read oh. her book which um, apparently she uh, made a book deal before the verdict had come in. And um, I don't know if you've looked at the coverage of the verdict on verdict day. Watch her coming out of the courtroom. She looks like a truck ran over her. I mean, she looks, <laughs> she looks, pale, as, she looks pale as a ghost, like she's just in a state of shock. And I noticed in her book, and she calls herself a, uh, a very, you know, professional journalist, um, he never mentioned the four misdemeanors that he was acquitted of, as I recall. 
she mentioned the ten felony charges, and when I saw that, I was wondering if. Um, and again, I haven't I haven't read the book in a long time, but I did read it, um, and you know, clearly it was written at a time when she was you know she was shattered. She had to leave court TV. You know, I think it was the following October or November. I don't remember because a a reporter for the New York Post called me and wanted my comment, and I refused to give a comment. I just didn't want to get involved in that. You know, the trial was was over. You know, we prevailed, justice was done, and I didn't want to get involved in that. And uh, But as I recall, she didn't even mention the misdemeanor acquittals in her book. You know, maybe that was just too much for her. I don't know. I, but I always felt she was just trying to help the prosecution. And I think everyone knows that uh, she was at Gavin Arvizo's wedding, I believe, with Ron Zonin and with uh, the, the witness, Louise Polanker, whom Zonin called in the prosecution case and then married. Um, right. It seems to, my opinion is she has some type of bond with, you know, the prosecutors uh, and the Arvizos, and that's her right and privilege, you know, as a free member of society. I just don't think very much of her for, for many different reasons. And I'll tell you, the funny thing is I didn't know her history with Michael Jackson when I got in the case. She had covered right. uh, my, my defense of actor Robert Blake in his murder case for court TV, and um, I was rep- defending Blake in a three-week televised preliminary hearing on court TV that she covered, and she was very complimentary of me. And when I first appeared in Santa Maria, I saw her, and I had no knowledge of her history with Michael Jackson. I actually went up to say hello. And, you know, right. she, returned, she returned the greeting, but there was something off. And I remember there was something in the corner of her eye that just, just, disturbed me. I remember I went to Susan Yu and said, I wonder what's wrong with Diane Diamond. I went to say hello to her and she just seemed, something seemed cold about her. And of course, then I found out what the history was. And it all made sense. Wow. Now, uh, Jimmy saves Chuck's cousin allegedly on a Twitter that's been taken down. A post read words to the effect of uh, no, nothing happened to us because it was like right after Wade's allegations. So they went to him apparently for an interview. Or So he put out a statement allegedly saying um, words to the effect that uh, well, Mike was the greatest thing. Uh, me and Jim were cool with Mike. Can that be used in trial if there is a trial, A, and uh, how damning is that if it's authentic? Well, I, I'm not I'm – not you know, in that case, uh, the, the estate is not, you know, talking to me about the case. They don't confide in me. They don't ask me for my thoughts about any of it. And, you know, I hear bits and pieces about what they're doing. Um, but as far as a statement like that goes, I mean, if, uh, if Jimmy Safechuck were to testify in a trial, uh, and if one of these witnesses, whether they're related to him or not, uh, can contradict him and say he said something that was, you know, the opposite, uh, they would uh, have value, you know, to the defense. But I don't know exactly what allegedly was said or not said. Um, I have my concerns, as you know, uh, Jordan, about that case. Um, and my concern yes. is, although I, I, think, I think Howard Weitzman is doing an excellent job representing the estate because the estate's doing well as a business, uh, because of his history with Jordy Chandler and perhaps Jason Franzia, uh, and when I say history, I mean a history of settling child molestation cases involving, 
you know, Michael Jackson as the uh, as the alleged perpetrator. Uh, he did settle the Jordy Chandler case. He signed the settlement agreement, and he appeared at the press conference to announce it. I've said that to you before. And if you go to uh, David Guest's documentary, Michael Jackson, Life of an Icon, you'll see Howard Weitzman at the press conference to announce the settlement. Uh, I know that his right. firm... Uh, his firm a few years later settled the Jason Francia case. I don't know if he was directly involved in that or not, uh, nor do I know if he signed the settlement agreement or not. But the, per- the problem is that the plaintiff's lawyer, who is very good, um, I've met him on a number of occasions, and I know his reputation. He's very good. He knows he's facing lawyers uh, who were with Michael Jackson when he settled these cases. You know, John Branca is not a litigator, but John Branca was, was, was Michael's music lawyer and entertainment lawyer during this period. And reportedly, according to Randall Sullivan, uh, Branca wanted Michael to settle these cases, didn't think emotionally and physically he was, you know, up to going to trial. And, um, and as I said before, if that were his views, I understand why, because many people in the criminal case didn't think Michael could withstand a long trial, emotionally and physically. But I think these are the wrong lawyers to be facing a top plaintiff's lawyer like Mr. Gradstein. And I don't think personally that uh, if, if they can't get these cases dismissed by a judge, and I hope they can, because I think it's outrageous to have these cases filed years after Michael passed away, uh, uh, and I'm hoping a judge will throw them out. But if a judge doesn't throw them out, I don't think uh, Branca and Weitzman have the courage to try these cases in a public forum. I don't think they're going to risk it. And I well, think you may see them scrambling to settle it. And I would hate to hear that millions of dollars were paid to settle one of these cases that seems so bogus to me. You know, uh, I, I caught a piece of the... Uh uh, Arando was uh, had Howard Weitzman on, and uh, they, he spoke somewhat about the '93 case. Uh, let me play you a little clip of that, and I want to get your take on the other side. Okay. And this is uh, before you were counsel. Um, now the uh, uh, the ace criminal defense attorney who represented Michael Jackson the first time around in 1993 on charges that were hauntingly similar. Howard Weitzman joins us from Los Angeles. Uh, Howard, are they not? First of all, welcome. Nice to see you again. Thank you, Geraldo. Okay, so are, you know, did you have a, a sense of deja vu when you heard of uh, the arrest, the complaint this time around? Well, I did. Remember the last time there was no arrest, there was no complaint, there was a civil suit filed. So it was a bit different, but we dealt with the same district attorney, Tom Snedden, uh, appropriately nicknamed Mad Dog, by the way. So you believe that he really has it out for your former client, for Michael Jackson? Well, I, I think he has a state of mind that Michael has committed uh, criminal acts and that uh, Michael slipped away the last time and he's going to get him this time. So clearly there's an attempt at a show of power here. Is it just and a show of power, or is it revenge? You think he has an axe to grind? He wants to, he's, you know, he's on en route to retire soon. He has this uh, this guy who got away ten years ago. Do you think he's got, you know, something more insidious than just an axe to grind? Well, I, I think subconsciously um, he wants to show both Michael and the world that he's in control. You know, what's very different here from the last time is Michael's in the criminal justice system now, and that has caused and will continue to cause him a lot of problems. He's not in control. He's in somebody else's jurisdiction. And I think a lot of what has gone on has been the result of either poor planning or bad advice, as I see it. 
Let me ask you something more substantive than that before I address some of those issues that you raise, Howard. Do you believe that your former client is a child molester? Do you think he's a pedophile? No, I do not. But the bottom line, I wasn't there in 1993. I wasn't there in 2003. I don't know what happened. But, but I choose to believe he's not a pedophile. I choose to believe he has not molested children. And I hope I'm right. Then why did he pay all that money to evade the charges last time around? Well, you're talking to someone who didn't agree with what ultimately happened. You have a team, the client makes the decision for whatever reason, sometimes just to avoid having to go through the risk of a trial, because it's always a risk when you're in the criminal justice system. Uh, um, I wish it hadn't happened. Um, I said that back then, and uh, I say it today. But that's history, and now he's got to deal with 2004. Under the law, as currently written, as you know, Howard, uh, that that previous complainant uh, might turn up again uh, and testify against him in the criminal court. Well, um, as I say, I felt 10 years ago it was a case that could be tried and won. I feel today if that person surfaces again, uh, the lawyers, uh, if they're well prepared and do their job, will be able to uh, dissuade people that uh, um, the offense took place. What do you think? See what happens. What do you think about the fact that the current complainant? also hired the same attorney, Larry Feldman, who got the big score last time. Well, you know what? It says something there. If he hired Larry, the leverage, if you're looking for money in a case like this, is before you go to the authorities, not afterwards. It seems to me it's an indicator that the, that the case is weak. And if you look at the allegations here, meet cancer victim, vulnerable young man, invite him back to Neverland, give him wine and molest him, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, I may agree with you on that point, Howard. What do you think of the mistakes you mentioned by the defense team this time around? The arraignment Well, I, I have to say, first of all, Michael, although he is uh, smart and understands a lot of what goes on around him, he's not easy to control. First of all, to be late for the arraignment in your first court appearance is just something that shouldn't be done. The judge controls that environment. It was a show of disrespect. If he had to leave at 6.30 a.m., should have been there on time, and I'm sure will be there on time going forward. I would have preferred he not show up in a limousine, just an SUV. I would have preferred that it was less of a spectacle and he went directly to the courtroom. Um, all of that. And, and the conduct coming out, um, I thought, was the wrong message. You know, ultimately, there's going to be jurors, 12 people, some who may or may not have thriller or bad in their record collection who may look at Michael as unique and eccentric, although a great creative talent. And somebody has to impress upon Mike that uh, he's going to be playing to an audience that may not include 12 fans, maybe some fans and some people who don't like the music or don't like the way he's conducted himself. Love to talk to you all night, mate. Howard Weissman, thank you very much. Uh, Tom, give me your take on what you heard about on uh, Howard Whiteman, Howard Weitzman's uh, take uh, that he wanted to uh, settle, uh, didn't want to settle in '93. I don't Basically. believe it. Um, now, I wasn't there. I'm not a witness to anything that went on. I wasn't representing Michael in the Chandler case, and I didn't had never even met him. I knew Randy at that time, but I had never met Michael. But if you read Randall Sullivan's chapter on the whole Jordy Chandler uh, case. Um, he reports, and it's only information that was given to him, he reports that Bert Fields, who was co-counsel with Howard Weitzman, uh, 
uh, that Bert Fields claims that Weitzman uh, was very much for a settlement. Um, so the question is, who do you believe? I mean, Weitzman signed the settlement agreement. It's on the Internet. I know, I know someone who has an original copy of it with his signature in blue ink. Uh, he attended the press conference to announce it. Why would you attend a press conference to announce a settlement if you were dead set against it? So, again, I'm not a witness to what happened. I wasn't there. Maybe at one point he opposed it, and then maybe he changed his mind. But his actions don't suggest that he was, uh, he was opposing it. But he, I guess it's possible he did oppose it at some point. But why would you attend a press conference? You know, I know lawyers who have thought settlements were not in their client's interest, and they were, did not sign them. They got some other lawyer to sign it. And they certainly don't appear at press conferences to announce it. And I also, his words about whether or not Michael Jackson was a molester, they seem like weasel words to me. Um, I don't. I didn't get a great feeling of comfort or confidence uh, in what he oh, thought of Michael Jackson. When, uh, when he uh, said, "I choose to believe," when he said, "I choose to believe," you, yeah, you didn't, didn't like it. You know, it's just my personal feeling. They seem like weasel words to me, um, and I would think it seems to me like he's trying to to speak to different groups uh, who dis- who disagree on this subject. But that's just my interpretation. You know, he's free to say what he wants to say. But, you know, I know that his firm, uh, you know, I believe his firm settled the Jason Francia case a couple of years later. So I don't know. I don't think it sends a great message that he was involved in that settlement uh, to the plaintiff's lawyer uh, who he's litigating with. But hopefully they'll get a judge to throw this stuff out. Um, but if they don't, um, I have my doubts as to whether he and Branker are going to go through a public trial. I think they they will pay money to settle. That would that's my guess. I hope I'm wrong, because you know to pay more money to settle one of these cases, particularly given the statements that that Robson and Safechuck have made in the past, I think it would be uh, you know just disastrous for Michael's reputation. But that's just my opinion at a distance. I'm not involved in the case. They don't confide in me. They don't ask me what I think. And I don't go to the estate's events, and I'm not, I'm not part of the estate at all. So um, I do think they're running a business very effectively. I hope they can handle these molestation cases effectively. Now, Mike, you were with the kids, and uh, you were on that show on uh, HLM, and uh, you uh, felt uh, that Michael no way was ever capable of hurting a child. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Like I said earlier, you know, if you if you knew Mr. Jackson and his kind of heart, and there's no way that you could even imagine this man being that vicious. Um, you know, there's not a doubt. There's not a shadow of doubt in my mind. You know that he he did not do any of these things in which that people bring these allegations about. And Kerry, uh, your take? Okay. Uh, Tom, so we're going to go out to the calls? Sure. Is that good? Okay. Yeah, by the way, the, the comments uh, Mr. Weitzman made about uh, Michael's arraignment, I was not his lawyer at that point. That was uh, Garagos, who was his lawyer, who was fired approximately nine months before the trial started. And, uh, right, again, that, I wasn't there. Huh? That that audio was taped when, when uh, Garagos was counsel of MGA at that time. And as I as I've told you before, Michael's belief Michael strongly believed that Garagos was way over his head and not up to the task. And you know, he mentioned that to me when I first met him in Florida, and I agreed with him. I said this guy does not have a good trial record. 
uh, he doesn't belong in this case, and he's not going to win it if he stays in. And Randy was very much uh, in agreement. I actually saw Randy a few weeks ago. It was good to see him, and he's doing very well and uh, doing his music. And Randy told me that he had sat down with his brother um, and prepared a long list of cases that Garagos had lost, sat down and went through them with, uh, with his brother Michael. And uh, Randy's conclusion was that uh, Garagos is famous for being famous, not for winning criminal trials. And um, <laughs> Randy, is the, Randy is the one who wanted me defending his brother. And I'll always be grateful to him for <laughs> that. And, you know, the politics were fierce at that point. You had Garagos and, and Ben no, Bradford. No were, pardon me? Did he lose a case that was involved with Notorita? Yes, and also Scott Peterson, who went to death row. Uh, we've talked about it before, but Randy, I will always be indebted to for recommending me to his brother, for fighting to have me become lead counsel. And, you know, during the case, there were politics to deal with, too, because uh, you had Garagos and other people, you know, trying to lobby family members to get back in. And a lot of this was distracting. And Randy always had my back during that case. He always wanted me to be the lead lawyer, and I uh, will always be grateful to him for that. Uh, yes, and Randy, Randy had basically had Mike's back, right? Oh, At all times, you felt. He, uh, Randy called me on the phone, and uh, he wanted me to uh, to represent his brother. And in the beginning, I said no. I was tied up in the Robert Blake murder case, and we were actually in jury selection in the Blake case. And Blake and I had a horrendous falling out, and the judge met with us and tried to straighten it out, and. I withdrew from the case, and Randy called me right up. He said, Tom, we've never wanted these guys, referring to Garagos and Brappen. He said, we especially don't want Garagos. He's way over his head. And uh, will you come to Florida and meet my brother? And I said I would, and it was a very secret trip. I flew to Orlando and ended up meeting with Michael and uh, some of his people and answered a lot of questions about my background and my view of life and my view of my profession. And uh, I left, assuming that they were probably meeting with other people. And Randy called me uh, shortly thereafter and said, my brother wants to hire you. And I said, I, aren't you interviewing other people? And he said, no. He said, uh, my brother uh, heard you speak and came to me and said, I don't want to talk to anyone else. I want you. And I was very flattered. And then, of course, flew back to Florida um, and, uh, you know, became his lead counsel. But Randy's the one who really wanted me in, really pushed for it, and when people tried to undermine me during the case, uh, he was always there trying to protect me. Okay, let's go out to the Caribbean. 806 is up. It's your turn, 806. You're on the phone with Tom Mesero and the two former bodyguards, Mike Garcia and Kerry Anderson. What is your thought? Hey there, Mr. Mesero. This is Christine from last time. Yeah. Hello. Um, How you doing? I'm okay. How are you? Doing fine. Thank you. Um, my question is in regards to the nine, the, um, the 04 arraignment when Michael was there when he was arraigned during that time. Um, I was um that when he had got on top of the SUV and started dancing, I was. I got the impression that he did do that for fans, but I also read in a book what Aphrodite Jones had written that 
he said it was because he was nearly trampled by a bunch of fans. So is there any truth to that, you know, since it was such a circus like that? Mr. Well, I wasn't his law- I, wa- I was not his lawyer at that point. That was before I met Michael, um, and that's before I became his lead counsel. Um, so I, I really can't tell you exactly what happened. Um, and when I got into the case, my whole feeling was, you know, let's just let's just move forward, not backward. And I had to review everything that was done before, and uh, so much uh, that should have been done was not done in the investigation and in in, in strategy, et cetera. Uh, so I just immersed myself in what had to be done and uh, to win the case. I didn't really dwell on what happened that day. Um, uh, I don't doubt that Michael Jackson wanted to please his fans and was very grateful that they were there to support him during a very, very bleak, very dark period in his life. Uh, uh, He always had a very soft spot for his fans. Um, That may have been part of it. uh, I don't know how to answer your question because I'm really not a witness to those events other than what I saw on TV, which is what you saw. I mean, because I thought what Aphrodite had said seemed plausible enough to me. I mean... Yes, it does seem plausible. It does. But I also would not be surprised if Michael wanted to recognize his fans uh, because they were so supportive of him during a difficult period. Remember, the Michael Jackson I knew uh, was very, very depressed and very upset by how many so-called friends had abandoned him. Um, uh, there was a long list of people that he thought would stick by him who ran for the hills, so to speak. And the fans who stood by him and supported him and, and gave him strength and confidence and support, uh, he always wanted to recognize them. You know, He always felt they deserved... Uh, his deepest respect and gratitude. And Mike, you were uh, also saying that on that program that uh, MJ was uh, very uh, close with his fans, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Just listening to Mr. T- uh, you know, him speak right now, he, he just bringing back so many memories. Like I said, I, 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 I'll contest to that because I, I got. Mr. Jackson chewed me out for not being nice enough uh, in New York City one time, and, and you know, you know, the way that he felt about his fans, they were everything. And and, and I, I agree that I think that it wouldn't surprise me that he got on top of the the vehicle to address his fans and, and show his love and support and saying thank you to everybody um, in doing so. You know, he having worked in you know many clients from Hollywood, there was nobody more gracious than him. There was nobody more gracious than him when it comes to his fans. And you could have said that too, Kevin. I'm sorry? Yeah, Tom. No, go ahead. No, I, I was I'm just going to say, I, I think Michael Michael was so kind-hearted, so sensitive, so generous. Uh, he would have done more for his fans if he could have. Um, he always he always had the, the fans in mind. He never took them for granted. Um uh, he always wished them well, and if he ever heard a story about a fan who got hurt or ran into a t- tragedy or, or difficulty, it would sadden him. He was a very, very sensitive, caring person, and he, he loved his fans and really did Absolutely. want to give them attention and gratitude. Absolutely. You know, you know, Joy, I don't, I don't know if we spoke about it before, but you know, we, here in Vegas when we were – you know, it was 115 degrees, and the fan, and you know, there was always a few fans that would hang out in front of the house. 
And, you know, Mr. Jackson would, get, you know, get tired of being in the house and want to go for a drive. So as we're coming out of, out of the house, he would see them over there. And he'd always make sure that they had water and make sure that, you know, they were okay and everything else. And, you know, a few times he would tell them, you know, hey, you guys want to go for a ride. And we would just, you know, we would just kind of just riding around, you know, in a good five-mile radius and, and, and things like that. And, and that was his way of just kind of, you know, getting to know them. And, you know, like I said, he, he was amazing to his fans, and he, and he was he loved them, you know. And every every uh, every uh, fan of Mr. Jackson that that contacted me, I, I let them know that too about how he felt about them. You know, there were some people that came from Brazil um, about a month ago out here, and and I, I made it a point that they understood that he he loved every single one of them, and and he appreciated them, um, you know, beyond belief. And and you know, I just wanted to make sure that they knew that they understood that, you know, that he wasn't just some celebrity that was out and about and doing his thing. You know, he he loved, I mean, capital L, loved his fans. And uh, Kerry, you probably second that, right? Kerry. Okay, I think we lost uh, Kerry. Let's go out to uh, Philadelphia, I believe. 215, please state your name and where you're calling from. 215, it's your turn. Hello, uh, this is Robin Baylor. Can you hear me? Yes. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Just wanted to say hello to Mr. Mesereau and say hello to the bodyguards and say hello to everybody out there. And I just have a question. It's an odd question. But it's one that I have been thinking of. Um, by any chance, do anyone of you think that maybe, just maybe, Jimmy Safechuck and Wade Robeson, that maybe they're being threatened to do this, that maybe there is some other ulterior motive behind this lawsuit? Has anyone ever given that, that thought? Tom, well, I'll go to you first on that. Uh, what, what, what do you think about that? Well, I have no evidence to support that. It's always possible somebody is um, behind the scenes, you know, for you know, putting tremendous pressure on them to try and get a big settlement or a big verdict. That's always possible, but I certainly have no evidence to that effect. You know, I think it's all about money. I think they saw how much money Chandler got. I think they saw how much money Francia got. And I think the attitude is why work if you can sue the Michael Jackson estate. But these were people who were supposedly very good friends of his, long-standing friends of his, especially uh, uh, Wade Robeson. He's known Michael for 20 years. He was considered one of his best friends. I just don't understand why he would do such a 180 at this particular time. Well, you're uh, you're preaching to the choir because I called him as my first witness uh, in the defense case, in Michael Jackson's criminal trial. He was my first witness, and one of the reasons I made him my first witness was because he was so strong for Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. And I met with him and his mother and his sister. I called his mother and his sister as witnesses also because they traveled, uh, they traveled with Michael uh, from time to time, and they stayed at Neverland off and on. And the three of them were just so supportive of Michael Jackson and so adamant that nothing, you know, uh, that was that was illegal or embarrassing or, or offensive ever occurred. I mean, Wade was attacked viciously in, in, in by you know, Prosecutor Ron Zonin during cross-examination, and I recall him using the word, I think it was ridiculous, that these allegations are ridiculous, that he never did anything sexual to me, 
never was offensive to me, never, uh, you know, touched my body parts in any improper way. I mean, we explored all of this in the trial, and for him to just make an about-face like this many years later, particularly after he's dead. Um, and can't defend I, himself. He can't defend himself. And, you know, I think it's all about a big money grab. I think they, they've heard these figures, how much this estate is worth and how much money it's making. And they went to a very good lawyer um, who looked at, you know, the law and looked at, you know, their allegations. And, you know, we live in a time period where, you know, late allegations of child molestation are being done a lot. You know, you've seen the Catholic Church scandals. You've seen other scandals at schools. Mm -hmm. And the law has been liberalized considerably to allow people to make late claims. The law is trying to, you know, provide for those who live in denial or live in shame or have psychological reactions that uh, that arguably prevent them from making, you know, claims, you know, in, in a short period of time. I think they're just manipulating and abusing the law um, to try and make a big money grab because they've seen how much money this estate is making. I think so, too. I think that could be one of the reasons. Um, I think uh, uh, that is about it. If I have any other questions, I'll give you a call back a little later. Thank you very much for speaking to me, and uh, have a good day. Thank you so you much. You too. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, I have a, uh, a Facebook comment, I believe. Um let me see if I can get it here. And this is for Tom. This comes from uh, Meg Tom. She asks, can you ask Tom if he would go to the trial to represent the estate if they ask him to do so? Of course, if he went, uh, that's fair. Question mark. Also, is he aware that there is a petition being passed out for the same topic? Well, I have uh, I have heard about the petition. Um, Debbie Kunish, um, sent me, who has a website, uh, sent me uh, a copy of it, and I am aware of that. Um, if I were approached, I would certainly sit down and discuss it. Uh, there would be some conditions attached to it. Uh, number one, Susan Yu would be my co-counsel. Um, and, you know, as you know, she was my brilliant co-counsel in the criminal trial, and she left no stone unturned. Uh, I've never known a more brilliant, harder-working lawyer than she is, and she's creative, and she really does see uh, see deep, look deeply into evidence. Um, she would have to be my co-counsel. I would. Uh, one of the conditions would have to be that we're not going to pay money to settle it. And I don't know if the first of all, the estate has expressed no interest in me um, uh, doing this. Uh, they haven't contacted me at all, nor, nor have they asked me my views on any of these things. But if they ever did approach me about, you know, assuming these responsibilities, uh, I would be willing to discuss it, but I would have pretty strong conditions attached to it. And uh, didn't you tell me that there was some kind of maybe a factor that you couldn't maybe do it because of the relationship with Wade Robson that you uh, uh he was a witness for you? Is there some kind of well, well you know, because I am a witness to statements he made. Uh, in the criminal case, and I am a witness to statements he made to me before I put him on the stand. Um, but in civil cases, you know, sometimes civil lawyers can appear as witnesses too. So I think there would probably be a, a way around that. 
Um, but yes, the answer to your question is potentially I am a witness. Now, there is a transcript, of course, from the criminal courtroom, a uh, transcript of what Ray Rob- Robson said. Um, but yes, potentially I suppose I could be. Okay, so uh, that answers that. And uh, were you aware of this uh, so-called uh, petition? Yes, I did. Uh, I was uh, emailed a copy of it, um, and I did see it, and I'm very flattered, and I'm grateful to the fans for thinking so highly of me. Um, uh, and we'll see what happens. But I have not been approached, and I've had no discussion with anyone from the estate about this possibility. Absolutely. Let's go out to, I believe this is Long Island. Uh, let's go to 631. Please state your name and where you're calling from. 631, you're on with Tom and bodyguard Mike Garcia. Yes, hi. My name is Steve, and I'm coming from uh, Lindenhurst, Long Island, and I have a lot of questions for um, mostly Tom, but everybody can, uh, you know, chime in. Or if we can just answer some of them at a later time, but it's no big deal, but I do have a lot of questions. So, I want, uh, first of all, um, I want to know what you think, what um, Tom thinks of uh, Debbie Rowe is going to, like, marry Mark Schaffel now, who sued Michael, like, like, a couple years ago, so I found that interesting. And two, I wanted to know if anybody has seen uh, Luna Joe's videos on their own time and what what they think of them. And a couple things I read on the internet I wanted to share with you. But well, let's go one by one. Uh, uh, Tom, I believe you did say you, you saw Luna Joe's videos, right? I think she does a magnificent job. I mean, she's doing such a credit to the Michael Jackson community, to the fan community, to the historical record that uh, we need uh, about the life and struggles of Michael Jackson. She's uh, doing a fabulous piece of work. I'm just astonished at how, just how intelligent, creative, thorough, and professional she is. And she really goes for the truth. Um, she's on top of her facts, on top of her, uh, I mean, just it's amazing what a, what a great service she's doing to all of us. And uh, I want to commend her for being so, such a wonderful uh, advocate for Michael Jackson and a wonderful advocate for the truth. Uh, as far as Absolutely. Debbie Rowe and Mark Schaffel being engaged, I'm, I'm in shock, to tell you the truth. Um, I never thought uh, those two would be a couple. Um, so I'm just, <laughs> I'm really in shock. I don't know whether it's true or not. I saw, it in a, I saw it in a few tabloids. I don't know if it's true. I think it is. Um, she did uh, Mike, do you want to weigh on, in, on this uh, situation? Say that again? Uh, I was going oh, no, over to Mike. Mike. Mike? Okay, we might have lost Mike. Uh, but go ahead, Steve, with uh, your next question. Um, and uh, I saw something on the Internet about uh, this guy, Chuck and he said that Michael kept him from going to school so that he could, you know, hold him hostage and do things to him or whatever. I don't know. I thought that well, was I mean, uh, you know, crazy. Robson and Safechuck are plaintiffs in a very serious uh, civil action against the Michael Jackson estate. And from based on everything I've seen and heard, they've completely changed their views about what happened uh, during their time with Michael Jackson. 
I mean, it was, you know, Robson, I certainly talked to myself, and he was adamant that nothing ever happened to him. Safe Chuck, I never met, but I read a lot of his statements that he made through the years. And he was like Robson and absolutely, you know, just denying any impropriety or anything uh, of a sexual nature or uh, an offensive nature uh, done by Michael Jackson. I mean, these were two of his biggest supporters for years and years. And suddenly they've done a complete about face years after he died. Uh, and they're asking, you know, they're going to ask for large sums of money. I'll, I'll guarantee you that. Um, and uh, I, I think it's very, very, it's very disturbing. It's disturbing that the legal system will allow this to go on. And maybe it won't. And maybe the, uh, you know, maybe Weitzman and the lawyers for the estate will get these cases thrown out. I certainly hope they do. But it's disturbing that they can file these things, you know, release them to the public. And, you know, there, I think a lot of people saw the documents that, uh, that Robson filed, the discovery documents, uh, asking the estate to admit or deny certain very offensive, um, you know, factual remarks, uh, asking for all sorts of information about how many boys visited Neverland during periods of time and things like that. And I think a lot of this is just, um, to me, it's just a big money grab, as I said before. Uh, I'm with you on that one. Let's go out to uh, area code 636. Please state your name and where you're calling from. You're on the phone with Tom Mezzer on Michael Jackson, birthday bear. This is Thomas. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. This is very nice uh, to talk to you. Nice to talk to you as well, Tom. Uh, my question is, I agree with you that it is a, oh, a money grab, but I don't understand the timing. Why is it like five, six years after Michael died, are they coming forward now instead of like when, during the actual criminal trial, when you testified for in your case, or maybe just after the criminal case? Well, as I said before, I think... Uh, they went to some very, very good lawyers, and Grabstein is an excellent plaintiff's lawyer. But when I say plaintiffs, to those who don't know the profession, plaintiff's lawyers are lawyers who represent people who are suing others to collect money. Um, they went to these lawyers. Um, the law has loosened up a lot in recent years to allow alleged victims of child molestation and child sexual abuse to make late claims. And the law has become much more flexible on these late claims. And you've seen a lot of this in the Catholic Church scandals, where people claim they were molested by priests and years later file claims. And the law is trying to accommodate, you know, real victims of child abuse and child molestation who for many years lived in denial or just were afraid to come forward or embarrassed or had psychological barriers to coming forward. That's what the law has tried to accommodate. Uh, in my opinion, uh, these two individuals are taking advantage of that or trying to take advantage of that. Maybe a judge will throw the case out. I just don't know. But that seems to be the case. It just doesn't make a lot of sense that years after someone died, you can attack them and claim they did certain things and they're not even here to respond. Uh, totally agree with you. Let's go out to uh, area code. Uh, let's go to New Jersey, I believe this is. 609, please state your name and where you're calling from. It's your turn that you're on Michael Jackson's birthday bash. 
Would that be me? Yes. Can you hear me? Oh my! Am I on the yeah. radio right now? Oh, yes, you are. Geez. <laughs> Hi, <your> name? Jordan. <laughs> this is. <laughs> Um, I've been listening the whole time on my phone. Um, my name is Heather Francis. I'm from Central New Jersey. Um, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Tom. Yeah. Mike. Uh, it is. It is a, a, an honor. I am honored to just speak with you guys right now. And you know, Kerry. I guess we lost him earlier when he was on on the line. Right. Jeez. Oh, I'm lost. <laughs> um. Hmm. Jesus, I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> you know, you're, I know you're there's talking, other people you're waiting. Ta- you're talking to a fellow New Jerseyite. Most of my upbringing was in Englewood, New Jersey. Really? Really? Yeah, I was born in New York, but uh, raised partly in New York, but mostly in Englewood, New Jersey. It's nice out there. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice out there. <laughs> Yeah, I I live near the capital, Trenton. I live uh-huh. near there, but I'm uh-huh. further away. But um, I, I wanted to, um, first, you've heard it a million times, but I just wanted to say, Mr. Mesereau, thank you for everything you've done. I think I have read and watched every interview you've ever done, <laughs> um, thanks to the Internet. I'm pretty sure I've seen just about all of them. You being on TV, um, I've heard, Jordan, I think I told you before, I've seen just about all of your, heard all your broadcasts. Mike, are you still there? No, Mike is not with us right now. Oh, okay. Mike is. Okay, I, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just nervous. Um, That's okay. You want to wish uh, MJ anything on his uh, birthday here? Oh, of course. I, I put some stuff up online. Um, I have a candle lit, you know, here at my house for him. Uh, Mr. Mesereau, um, and it, it, I you know, hate going over it a million times, but do you have any idea why not so much the estate, but the family has not reached out to you for the current issues that are going on? Do you have any idea as to why? Well, uh, the estate is in charge of these matters. Um, and as far as has anyone from the family talked to me, I, I'm not going to respond to that. Um, I actually was was approached by someone, and I think it's a confidential conversation. But the estate is really in charge of it. The trustee, John Branca, makes these decisions. John Branca and John McLean are the trustees. Trustees are given enormous powers um, by law. Uh, and decisions like what lawyer to hire and whether or not to settle, uh, that will be squarely in Branca and McLean's lap. Um, and they have not shown any interest in talking to me at all, and that's okay. That's their privilege. They can hire whatever lawyers they want and approach it any way they want. Um, my problem with, with them is, as I said before, is what does it look like to the plaintiff's lawyer when the lawyers making these decisions are the ones who were set, who settled in the past, that just concerns me as a, as a possible sign of weakness. And um, I don't see these lawyers, Frank L. Weitzman and the lawyers around them. I don't see them going to trial in this case. I think if you're a judge is going to throw it out or they're going to pay money, they may try to make it confidential as much as possible. 
Um, but I think word would probably get out, and if word gets out, you're going to see other people jumping on the bandwagon. You know, supporters of Michael Jackson are suddenly going to claim they had repressed memory or, you know, lived in denial or shame and never came forward. And that's the that's the dilemma that these cases pose. As I say, I hope a judge says they were filed too late, the evidence is too thin, I'm not letting them go forward. Um, but that, that's the answer I can give you. Okay, uh, Robert Hilburn um, remembered Michael Jackson uh, from the L.A. Times. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he said such kind words at courtesy of Boone Joe that uh, I did want to play it for you and him and the audience on his birthday. So let's listen to his words. This is briefly after the death, and I want to get your take on the other side. That's okay. Sure. Was at the Los Angeles Times from 1970. To, 19, to 2005 as a pop critic, but my days with Michael go back even before that, which makes it seem a long time ago. Uh, he was in the Jackson 5. The Jackson 5 was the hottest young pop band in America. I was freelancing at the Times, and uh, uh, the editor asked me if I'd go do a story with him, and I, I wasn't that interested in the, their music. I, you know, I was more interested in Dylan and people like that, but I thought it was kind of an interesting little story, so I went out to their house. Uh, it was West Hollywood or Beverly Hills at the time, uh, around 8 o'clock. And I think the publicity person came to the door. The other brothers were all sitting there really waiting to talk. And I noticed Michael wasn't there. And uh, I think maybe it was his mom said, I'll go get Michael, I'll go get Michael. He's probably watching those cartoons again. And so she went away and came back. And, you know, he came back. He was just dressed up in a nice little outfit. He was just so cute. But you can see it was the last place he wanted to be at 8 o'clock on a Sunday night was talking to me about anything. Uh, so they, uh, he didn't say much, but he had to stay in the room. So the other brothers kind of told about their experiences coming from Gary, Indiana, Motown days, Diana Ross, all this stuff. And finally, maybe about 8.45, uh, it was over with. You know, maybe 9 o'clock the interview was over with. And I remember the first thing after that, I went around and was shaking hands with everybody in, in the, the uh, group. And my, I started to shake hands. Lisa, Michael ran to the front of the line. He wanted to shake hands first. He says, now can I go watch my cartoons? And his kind of father said, all right, Michael, but only for a half hour because he had to go to school the next day. Yeah. He, he was just the cutest thing, and he was the cutest thing on stage. He was a great little singer, great dancer, but still the history of child stars becoming adult stars was so small that I never dreamed that there would be any life after that for the Jackson 5. And in fact, through much of the 1970s, the group did somewhat disappear, and it seemed like that they were, they were uh, over with. And I think that had a profound impact on Michael, the fact that he was loved by the world and then, in a sense, rejected. And it was even a deeper rejection that eventually I found out about. If you made a bet in 1974 that Michael Jackson would ever be, would have the biggest selling record of all time, I mean, th there wouldn't be a number high enough on the Oz board in Las Vegas to put it there. It'd be a million to one. Uh, so, you know, there wasn't much thought about Michael Jackson. Then he explodes with off the wall. Before that, they had to leave Motown. Motown thought, Motown wanted to produce the music, wanted to control the music, thinking they knew best. Michael knew, he realized he had to get away from Motown and, and work with other people. He had to make his music move in other directions. So he was a pretty tough young man that he, that he actually walked away from Motown. And he got together with Quincy Jones. They made Off the Wall. It was a huge hit. The Jacksons went on tour again, 1981. Sellout crowds all around the country. So that's when I got back into his life. I flew to St. Louis, uh, rode the bus with him to, to Detroit, 
And the, the other brothers were so happy, just like it was back in that house in uh, 1970. They were, they, were, they were talking, eager to talk about their life, but Michael wasn't there. This time he wasn't watching cartoons, though. He was in the back of the bus, just kind of uh, nervous, anxious, frightened almost in a way. Uh, and so at the end of the interview, just before we pulled into Detroit, I finally went back to the back room, back of the bus, and started talking to him. And, uh, you know, he was so different than the, 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 the 11-year-old. He was now 23. He was so different. Uh, I mean, we all changed, but, but this was so remarked. This sweet, happy, outgoing young man was, was just totally withdrawn. He was look at the floor when he would talk. And I, I said, you know, the one thing, I, I could, almost couldn't imagine him living on his own. And I said, uh, but I said, why don't you live in your own place now? You're a big star. Why do you stay and live with your parents at home? And he said this, and, it, and I always remember. He said, oh, no, I think I would die on my own. I'm, I'd be so lonely. Even at home, I'm lonely. I sit in my room and sometimes cry. It's so hard to make friends, and there are some things you can't talk to your parents or family about. I sometimes walk around the neighborhood at night just hoping to find someone to talk to, but I just end up coming home. And that's about as far as he would go and kind of, I didn't understand why the loneliness, why the, the fragileness and stuff, but uh, it was clearly he was very, very troubled in, in that, at that point. Even though I didn't see Michael for four years, I guess three years after that interview, I happened to be present at many of the events that were really probably the most proudest days of his life. First of all, I think it was the Pasadena Civic Auditorium on the Motown 25 special. And Michael got on stage and he did the moonwalk for the first time and I was sitting in the audience and people just gasped. And I said, you know, I didn't know if it was a trick. I didn't, I, you know, I wrote down in my notes, but I wasn't going to put in the paper that I didn't know what they had to describe the moonwalk. I didn't know quite what it was. It was just magical. And that was Michael's favorite term, he, magical. He wanted to always be magical. Uh, so I called his manager the next morning before our deadline, and I asked him, I said, was, was it an escalator or was it, a, was it something on stage that moved or, you know, what was that? And then they said, no, no, that was genuinely him moving. And I really couldn't believe it. I thought there was some trick to it, but I wrote in the paper about it. The night he won the eight Grammys, I was in the audience. He had clearly triumphed. You know, he had, he had, proved, he had, he had cut it, declared his independence from Motown. He was on top of the world. But the fascinating thing, the thing I remember most about that was later when I started talking to him, the night after he won those Grammys, I mean, most people would take a few days and relax and bask in the, he was back in the studio working on another record that night. Isn't that amazing? Uh, so, so I was, I mean, that, that was the dedication. He was so driven. He was really a perfectionist. He would often complain that the people around him just wouldn't work hard enough. You know, he was, he was uh, frustrated by that. He loved to be associated with famous people. It made him feel like a bigger star. And he thought the more famous people he'd be associated with, the more the public would be fascinated with him because he was always interested in building his stardom. He, was, he knew that he wanted to be the biggest star, the biggest celebrity. But th then the next thing I, uh, with Michael was I was on the Victory Tour, and I spent several weekends with him on the road. And the reason that came about was he had signed a contract with Doubleday to do his autobiography. And the reason he signed it was that Jacqueline o Kennedy Onassis was the editor there, and he was flattered. But he didn't want to do a biography, it turned out. I mean, once I got on the road with him, I found out he wanted to do a picture book. He wanted to get all his pictures together and uh, have maybe a caption about him, whereas she wanted a revealing book. But Michael didn't want, he thought that the least, the less you knew about people, 
stars, the more you were fascinated by him. He would say, he would say to me, Elvis never did interviews. Howard Hughes didn't do interviews. And, and that was, the, that was the, the framework he used. He was thinking the biggest people he could uh, think of. And what did they do? He was studying their lives. So, so anyway, we spent several weekends on the book. The frustration kept getting more and more because he would pick up these pictures. And it, he was so much against uh, telling anything about himself. Remember, we picked up a picture one time of an older man, maybe somebody looks like he was 80 or 90. I said, Michael, who is this? And he said, oh, that's my grandfather. And I said, well, let's see, what can we say about him in the caption? Did you like your grandfather? Oh, I loved him. I said, oh, great, we'll say that. And he said, no, 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 that's too personal. <laughs> and so it was really very difficult. And finally, there was a showdown. Uh, he, uh, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis came out to Los Angeles to his house to kind of sit and look, well, let's discuss this book. It's not going right. And he, he, but, but he was too nervous. He, he was afraid to sit. He, did, he didn't, didn't like confrontation. So he said, Bob, you talk to him, or Robert, he called me. Robert, you talk to her. And he raced upstairs in his bedroom and stayed there. And so I talked to her a few minutes and talked to her a few minutes. And you know, she, was, you know, she said they were trying to think of different ways to do the book and so forth. And, and finally, uh, you know, then she went back. And I got a call from uh, Michael's attorney. And uh, so I stopped being involved in. They, they decided to go a different way. But I think, I think Doubleday kind of took over the book instead of him kind of taking over the book. Oh, well, that was very nice to hear on Michael Jackson's birthday. Uh, Tom, from the L.A. Times, Robert Hilburn. Uh, what, was your ma- uh, uh, what was your take on uh, what you just heard? Well, I was, <clears throat> I was very fascinated and very intrigued by a lot of the things he said. He clearly uh, was a keen observer of uh, Michael Jackson from from his early years, and he uh, he really captured the genius uh, and the enormous courage that a young Michael Jackson had to recognize his genius and recognize at a very early age that he had to break loose from people around him who were not allowing him to fully express the genius he had. Because I've always thought it must have been very courageous of Michael to kind of break loose at such an early age when he did. Um, and he really captured uh, the loneliness of Michael Jackson. And, you know, fame can make people lonely because they don't know if people are, are, are approaching them for good reasons or not. And Michael had tremendous fame very early, uh, and I think he enjoyed the benefits of fame, but he paid a heavy price for it. Because, you know, I think the Michael that I met uh, at his darkest hour was a Michael who was extremely distrustful of everybody. You know, he just didn't know who to who to who to trust. He he didn't know how to trust lawyers, managers, uh, agents, business people. Um, and of course, you know, to be charged with these horrible horrible allegations uh, made him very suspicious about who was behind it and what people were trying to get from him. So I met him at a especially lonely and um, difficult time for him, and he was learning that a lot of people he thought would stand by him uh, just ran away. Um, and this man, in his long comment, uh, really captured, you know, the genius, the courage, the individuality, uh, the loneliness, uh, and the tremendous accomplishment of Michael Jackson. Um, what I don't think he hit on was Michael's enormous kindness and sensitivity to, to all living things, people, uh, especially people in distress, uh, children in the inner city, elderly people who are lonely and have no one to talk to, 
animals. He loved animals, loved caring for them. Um, uh, enormous sensitivity, enormous kindness, <laughs> enormous ability to give, an enormous desire to see people and others happy because that made him happy. But nevertheless, uh, that was a wonderful piece you just played. Um, now, I did not recall that there was that period of time when um, it looked like he wasn't going anywhere. I was not aware of that. My understanding is that you can really, uh, you can certainly trace a uh, historical line in, through Michael Jackson's life, and you'll see his genius constantly reaffirming itself and constantly breaking into other directions that uh, only a genius like he could create. Um, but I'm very intrigued by the piece. I'm very glad that you uh, you played it. And, you know, Jordan, you always seem to come up with very valuable stuff on Michael Jackson <laughs> in these interviews, and I really appreciate it. Well, that means a lot coming from you, and I appreciate that. But uh, let's try uh, a caller again. Let's go out to 208. Please state your name and where you're calling from. 208, it's your turn. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Uh, um, my name is Nathan. I'm calling from Idaho. Hi. Good evening. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Wade Robson has um, claims have been become more graphic. I don't know if you've heard this, Tom. I did hear it, and I did. Uh, I was sent copies of the um, legal documents, uh, it's called Discovery, that he, his lawyers sent to the lawyers for the uh, Michael Jackson estate. Uh, and yes, his, it would appear, based on those documents, that he's making extremely graphic and extremely disturbing uh, comments about what he alleges Michael Jackson did to him. And I find it very offensive, um, very disturbing, and I don't believe any of it. Sounds a lot different than the other alleged victims. Well, I, you know, it just, uh, I think there are a lot of, you know, I'm a lawyer myself, and although I specialize in criminal defense, I do get involved in civil cases on occasion. And my partner, Susan Yu, does a lot of um, sophisticated civil litigation and has gotten some tremendous results uh, in civil litigation, I might, might add, as well as criminal defense. But... Uh, I'm aware of the strategies lawyers use, and I think that Robson and Safe Chuck's lawyers want to um, send very graphic, very disturbing, very embarrassing allegations to the other side, um, and I think they want them to be public, and I think they want to just force the other side to pay money. Uh, they want the other side, the other side being the Michael Jackson estate, to conclude that it's hurting our business and we're better off paying a lot of money uh, to end this thing, uh, just like was done with the Chandler settlement in 1993. I've always said that that, that settlement was the worst decision ever made for Michael Jackson. It opened Pandora's box. It made many other greedy, you know, manipulative, dishonest people say to themselves, you know, why work when you can sue Michael Jackson and, and get millions of dollars in your pocket, you know, at a young age? It was just the worst decision ever made in his career. I think it led to it led to Francia. It led to lawsuits by security guards at Havenhurst. It led to lawsuits by security guards at, uh, at Neverland. 
And ultimately, it led to that horrific criminal case where I defended him as his lead counsel. So I find, I find all of this very disturbing, but I think I know what the lawyers are trying to accomplish. They want to just sow embarrassment. They want to hurt the business if they can and make Branca and Weitzman decide we've got to pay them and get rid of this thing. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Let's go out to 507 in the area code. Please say your name and where you're calling from. You're on with Tom Ezra. Hello, Jordan King, and hello, Mr. Mesero. This is um, Nick Eikers here. Um, I got All a right. question. But first off, I just want to say, you know, you get this a lot, Tom. I know you do, but you're such an inspiration to the whole MJ community all over the world. You're such an amazing person for everything you do, and, you know, you're just a great human being. So thank you. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much. You're very, very kind. But my, uh, my question is, and this is going to be a complicated question, because I heard a story about this um, a while back, and it really didn't get much coverage. But I'm wondering, about a week after the trial, Michael Jackson was very ill. He was very sick. He wasn't drinking any water. He wasn't eating any food. And apparently he was going to die. He was afraid that they, and he kept calling them they, were out to get him, and they were going to poison him. So he wasn't drinking anything. He wasn't eating anything. He was locked in his Neverland. And a, and a friend, I guess, took him to the hospital and said that if it would have been a couple hours and MJ would have been gone. So did, do you know anything about that, sir? I, I did hear that he was taken to the hospital and that he was dehydrated. Um, and that didn't surprise me. You know, you saw him deteriorate during the trial, you know, physically, um, uh, emotionally. Uh, I never saw him look as bad as he did on verdict day. Uh, he looked like he just uh, hadn't slept in, in weeks. He looked uh, terrified. His cheeks were sunken in. You know, he had trouble, you know, even smiling. I mean, he just looked awful. So I saw the deterioration. There never was deterioration mentally because I worked with him throughout the trial. I would talk with him at 3 and 4 in the morning. I would talk with him throughout the trial, uh, during the breaks, during lunch. And he was always very lucid, uh, very, very logical, very rational. Um, uh, he clearly... Uh, was, was mentally very fit throughout the trial, but his physical appearance just got worse. And I was told that he was in a state of dehydration. Uh, now, I was with him and, uh, at Neverland on verdict day. Uh, I skipped the, uh, the international press conference so I could, Susan, you and I could be with him at Neverland because we felt he really needed our presence and support. And, you know, I, I saw him... Um, with his children, hugging them, and everybody crying, uh, everybody just grateful that uh, that the jury saw the truth. Um, and he actually, at the end of the day, uh, looked a lot better than he did earlier. But he still had to lie down. He was weak and thin. And I do an answer to your question is that he did go to the hospital. I'm well aware of that. I know he was dehydrated. Uh, I never was told he was near death. It's possible. But I wasn't told that. And uh, that was the day that uh, uh, court was late, and uh, the judge uh, was going to revoke his. Uh, oh no! His, no, uh, I'm, ta- I'm, I'm talking about verdict day after he was found not guilty. That's what I'm talking about. And after uh, it was the question about was this trip to the hospital during the trial or after it that you're talking about? Um, I believe it's the call. Yeah, we lost the caller, so okay. I, I'm going to assume. 
there was a trip to the hospital during the trial, and, you know, he had a back problem, et cetera, um, and the judge got very upset. But there was, I, I think her question was, after the trial was over, did he go to the hospital and was he potentially near death? And I know he was dehydrated. I know he needed, you know, medical attention. I never was told he was near death, but it's possible. He just looks so bad. Well, Tom, I want to thank you for joining us here on uh, Michael Jackson's birthday bash. It was uh, definitely a pleasure to have you on. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Jordan, and thank you to everyone for supporting this wonderful artist and wonderful person. Uh, We're all blessed to have... You know, we're blessed to have known him. Uh, some of us were closer to him than others, but we all knew him in our own way, and we're all blessed uh, that he uh, he graced the planet and he made the world a much better place. And I'm glad people are keeping his reputation alive and uh, fighting fiercely against those who would like to uh, destroy his reputation because I've often said he's being attacked in death just the way he was attacked in life. There are just so many people trying to profit off his demise, even years after he passed away, and it's wrong, and I'm glad the fan community is not letting it happen. Absolutely, and uh, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Jordan. It's always a pleasure. Have a good weekend. Okay. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we also have a thank you also to Tom Mesero. Thank you. Um, Now we're going to bring in our other guests for the evening. Uh, from the ID Network, we do have Aphrodite Jones, I believe. Uh, let me let her in. Aphrodite, good evening. Uh, Hi, from Jordan. New York. How are you doing? Okay. Uh, you're uh, uh, following the party. I am going to bring a blogger or a, a YouTube uh, uh, defender, I guess you could call him, um, Matt, uh, will join us as a co-host with me. Good evening, Matt. Good evening, Jordan. How's it going? Okay, but I want to go to Aphrodite first. Uh, it's been five years his death, and now it's his birthday. Well, what's your take? Well, I think that first and foremost, the, the fans that I see on Facebook, Twitter, um, you name it, are out in full force wishing Michael a happy birthday, even in death, because... Let's face it, Michael Jackson will live forever, not only in our hearts, but in the in the souls of everyone who listens to his music. And there's never a day that I go by that I don't hear a Michael Jackson song that makes me smile. And that is something that all of us share around the planet, regardless of what we feel or think about him personally. So I, I just believe that Michael will always be celebrated Um and it's it's something that is a phenomenon to him and to him alone, if you really think about it. Who else has their birthday remembered and celebrated by fans across the planet in every country around the world besides Michael Jackson, even after, you know, five years after his death? And I believe it will continue for as long as any of his fans are still alive. And, you know, it's it's amazing the gift that he gave to all of us in his music and his dance and his performance. And uh, and I think also that everybody who is out there um, applauding Michael and rooting for Michael, as Tom Ezra just said, 
also are very active in making sure that people realize that they're not going to tolerate, uh, you know, others tarnishing or trying to destroy his name or um, his legacy. And there are those haters, if you will, that are still out there who just refuse to let go of um, negativity that was following and plaguing Michael in PR and in the media for a lot of his life. And I think that I think that energizes the fans. I really do. I think it, aside from the fact that we celebrate what he gave us, all that he did for you know this planet as an artist, and really basically lived to be an artist, he also, you know, he was a victim of a very horrible, malicious cycle of um, you know whatever you want to call it, tabloid trash, uh, you know, prosecution and and. Uh, media vengeance, if you will, and his fans are just not going to tolerate it. And they're out there to say, hey, we love Michael and, you know, we want the truth to be known. And they fight for him. And I think that is, you know, just it's a testament to the the power of this particular individual. I mean, he has, uh, I mean, he has superstar qualities even after death, who can we say that has that, I mean, to the extent that Michael Jackson does? I don't think there's anybody. I really don't. And uh, a lot of people were interested in the book that you came out with in uh, 2007. I did a little survey uh, on the uh, event page. Uh, What do you think of people uh, with the books? And one of the answers was, Positively, were the writers that wrote a Michael Jackson book before he died. So that got the most feed, and you did that, in fact. So can you please tell us about the book? Well, you know, I, I did. I wrote that book right after the trial. I The trial ended in 2005, and I started writing that book, researching it. The end of 2005 into 2006, it took me a year, and I brought it out in 2007. So that book really started, um, you know, almost 10 years ago. And uh, I did it because I felt that I had to set the record straight. There were some people back then who were accusing me of trying to just profit and and being, uh, you know, not being genuine about uh, what it was I was saying about Michael Jackson being a victim of the media However, I think anyone who has read that book, rather than just taking a look at the cover and making decisions without reading the book, realizes that, no, in (laughs) fact, I did all the work, and um, it's very genuine, and it's completely documented. And um, I did it because I felt it was the right thing to do. I mean, I did it because, yes, I love Michael Jackson's music, and... Michael Jackson as an entertainer, but I didn't write that book for that reason. I wrote that book because I felt that was part of a media that was after him, and I had wool pulled over my eyes, and ultimately I came to a decision to look at the research and look at the evidence myself and see what, try to figure out what the jurors saw, and then the truth was known, and I needed to make that known to people out there. Not It was not written for Michael Jackson's fans. It was written, really, for people who 
don't know about the truth about what was going on with Michael Jackson's life and how he was, in in my opinion, persecuted by the law, not just prosecuted. And, um, I mean, I, I, I presume, obviously, his fans like the book and want to read it. And, and, and But I really, to me, I, I want people who have have never thought about Michael as being an innocent person to read it because I think that that's the real difference that I was looking to make and it had nothing to do with him being dead or alive or anything like that. I mean, I, I did that. I believe Michael read that book. I know he was handed that book by um, oh, his nanny, Grace. Oh, yeah. I know he was handed that book. Um, and Michael was an avid reader. And I believe he read that book, but I have no way to confirm it because obviously before I ever had a chance to ever meet him on that level while I met him at trial, but I mean meet him and talk to him on, in that way, he was gone. So, um, But it, it's my hope and belief, and, my, and I, I sincerely believe he read that book because I know enough about him to know that he was he was interested and curious about what people were thinking and saying about him. So... And again, he was handed, I know from Grace personally, handed two copies of it. So, you know, I mean, what he may have thought of it, whether or not he really wanted to read it because he didn't want to relive it, those things, I don't know. But um, he knew that it was out there. He knew that there was somebody fighting for him. Um, You know, whether or not that meant anything to him, I think it did. I, I really do. And um, at the at the end of the day now, I mean, knowing Michael's been gone for five years, it's, it's just hard to believe. But I, I also have to say, when I first wrote that book, Michael had just turned 50. Um, right. And so, well, no, I'm sorry. He hadn't turned, he turned 50 just before he died. Prior to that, I actually went to a birthday party celebration for Michael and I had the book with me, and we did it in Manhattan, in New York City. And I can't tell you, there were a lot of fans there, a lot of people at that party. And I remember thinking, how strange it is that we're all having a party for Michael Jackson, and he's not here. And it was just a phenomenon to me to see how many people were there with, you know, whether they were impersonators, whether they were just fans, they were just dancing, the music was going there were people uh, of ev- artists of every type who were there at this event and I was there and um I don't think people realized the value of my book at the time I mean yes they liked it and they they bought it but it wasn't until he died that people suddenly understood really the value of the book and suddenly the book became you know uh you know in demand and to the point that I couldn't even fulfill the demand and um, so here we are, uh, you know, years later, celebrating Michael's birthday as as a as a community of people who realize how significant this person was and is in many people's lives and always will be. So I I just think it's I think it's a phenomenon that continues. I mean, it, it, you know, Michael is bigger than anybody that I can think of in in the entertainment world. Period. Yes. And, uh, you know, I think that's why we're, we're having this this celebration today. Yes, I agree. 
Matt, you want to weigh in? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I agree with Aphrodite. You know, Michael Jackson's life, everything about him was a phenomenon. It was like a show. You know, and that's the reason why people are so, like, look why the fan base is so big, even after all this time and after all these allegations and after all these rumors and all these lies. There are people who will believe and people who won't, but he remains so big because people are drawn into him. They, they love him for, you know, not just being an artist, because he's not just an artist. He was an amazing person. He was a humanitarian. He was a philanthropist. He, you know, lo- he, re- he loved and respected all of his fans. He, you know, he took talent and inspiration from so many other talented people from, you know, back in the years, like, you know, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, James Brown, Bill Bailey, Cab Calloway, Jeffrey Daniels, you know. He was always just so versatile and, you know, the whole world was so drawn into him and his music was so timeless. Like, even today, you can listen to Off the Wall and it still sounds like it's new. So it's like a legacy that can't die no matter what people try and throw at him. And people have been trying to throw things at him for over 30 years and they just, they can't do it. I mean, there, there have been a lot of people who believe it after some time, but they don't want to do the research. You know, like, you have all these liars, you got... Chandler, you've got Arvizo, you've got now Robson, you've got now Safechuck. And it's ridiculous because if you actually look into their stories, like what they're claiming, you can read through the lies so easily. It's like, it's like Wade, for example. He goes on trying to blame Michael for his father dying in 2002. Well, that was 12 years ago. You know, he's just throwing anything against the wall to see, to see what will stick. That's why he's naming every single sexual act that a person can possibly do. He's just trying to see, okay, what can I possibly stick to the wall? What can possibly stick for me that I can throw at Michael Jackson? Same thing with Chandler, same thing with Safechuck. I mean, they have the same lawyer. You know, the whole thing was really, as far as I'm concerned, it was very pre-planned. They had the same lawyer, almost the same claims, the same case. There, every time there's an article released online about Wade or Jimmy, they're released pretty much on the same day, um, primarily by RaiderOnline.com, which I'm not going to get into that website, but we can pretty much tell they're lying on that. Um, you know, Wade also has these other claims. It, most of it is, actually all of it, is ridiculous. And it only takes about five or ten minutes of research to really realize and see through lies. And I've noticed that a lot of people, fans or not, are actually starting to not believe the newer allegations from Wade and Jimmy. And I think it's because people are like, you know what, he's innocent, it's time to get past this and move on. And that's actually what I'm, I'm liking most now is that people are starting to actually, even people who didn't like him before, are actually starting to open up their hearts and realize the actual truth now. And people like, people like you, people like Aphrodite, people like Tom are always going to be there to show the truth no matter how much BS comes out. And it's amazing that this timeless, amazing man will be loved, hopefully, till the end of time. That's how I really see this. Well, I do think he'll be loved till the end of time, but I will also chime in and say that there is still, um, I find the phenomenon of people who I get to know personally, who know my work, but maybe have not read that particular book that I wrote, that read it and say, I can't believe, you know, I didn't know this about Michael Jackson, whatever color they are and whatever creed they are, that... You know, and I'm assuming that they really know or they they realize or they know me, they know my work, that they would be aware of it. And and the truth is, like you were saying, people don't take time to do 10 minutes of research. Um, We're all living in a world where everybody is so busy trying to just make a living, trying to get by, trying to keep up with this crazy pace that we've gotten into 
in our our current time that there it just seems like you know no one no one has the time to do research and people unfortunately continue to draw their conclusions from whatever it was that they know from the past whatever allegations or you know media uh, rag covers that that they have seen in their past that with many people just stay with them they just it just yeah, stays absolutely. with them and they, they don't absolutely. you know they don't bother and and that's why I say I really wrote the book for people who are not his fans because I knew at the trial that his fans truly believed that he was innocent and that he was facing trumped up charges I just thought his fans were crazy back then when I was actually part of the media <laughs> I didn't know until I did my own research and went into it and reevaluated everything that his fans actually were the ones who were right and that the rest of the world was, you know, basically looking to make a lot of money off of sensationalizing something that could tear down the biggest celebrity on earth. And yeah, um, and go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was going to make a comment. Yeah. Well, let me get in. Let me just say something to Aphrodite. We were talking to Tom Ezra earlier, and we were talking about Diane Diamond and Stacy Brown, who were recently something about the New York Post. I want to start with you, Aphrodite. What do you think of uh, uh, Stacey Brown writing five years later, almost to the date, that uh, Michael Jackson did all these horrible things uh, and he got it from so-called maids or something like that? And why would you write an article five years later? Then, you know, what's your opinion on that? Well, I met Stacey Brown in the trial, I actually spent some time with him. I also read the book that he wrote back then, which he was peddling at the trial, um, <laughs> which I thought was, you know, how do I put it? Blind. Inappropriate, perhaps, um, opportunistic. And um, I also found... Reporter. Sorry? Very bad, Stacey Brown. Very bad reporter. I just want to throw that in there. Well, very poor. yeah, I didn't want to. I don't, you know, I ha- I hate to besmirch somebody else who's in the industry that I'm in, but um, I will, I won't, I won't disagree with you <laughs> on that. Uh, I will also say that there were other people who I was checking sources with about him because I was questioning where he was getting his material from, where he was getting his information from, and frankly, uh, what I what I was able to discuss, determine was that his sources were questionable at best, and that he was, you know, kind of reaching to even be, make it seem as if he was in Michael's fold, which apparently he was not. So, I mean, this is, this is now, you know, kind of things that I learned off the record, but between that and the actual book that I saw, which to me looked more like a pamphlet than a book, not a pamphlet, but just not, not a substantially even in length book, um, I, I just I found it to be, again, very opportunistic that he would peddle this around to the media while this, the trial was going on in the hopes that somebody in the media would take it and run with it so that he could get a bestseller out of it. That's what I guess he was doing. I, I don't know what else. What, uh, what other reason someone would do that for? Um, I, 
talking to Michael's maids, I also interviewed Michael's maids, okay? I did my homework oh, did and decided not to include that those even even my thoughts about those interviews in anything I've ever talked about because frankly, um the one in particular that I'm not going to name, all she wanted was money, 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 money. And that's what she made clear to me in our meeting at a Starbucks. So I thought, you know what? I I just I I I can't go down this road of you know, if people are doing something because they truly care about the truth, then they truly care about the right. truth. And people, you know, most authors do not make very much money from writing books. I don't know if anybody out there understands that. There are maybe two dozen writers in the world that are Stephen King status and everybody else has to have, quote, a real job because books don't bring you a whole lot of money. There's not a whole lot of, uh, what is it, J.K. Rowling's or anything close to it in the planet. And so, you know, most people write books, that, especially nonfiction books, because they have a story to tell. They have uh, they have some reason that they, they, they want something known. And... Uh, it, to you know, I did that seven years ago and have never wavered from what I wrote or what I said. I didn't wait until five years later to start changing stories or switching stories or coming up with new information or throwing stuff around. It's just I I don't I don't understand that at all. I just think it's how do I put it. Um, it's I can't even say the words in bad taste because that doesn't doesn't really get you what you know it's not the it's it's. Can I please chime in about the whole five year thing? Sure. Okay. Um, I hear a lot of people bringing up, well, why is it happening after Michael's death? Why five years later? It's brought up by everybody from fans to everybody brings us up. And I just want to mention to people that it's not uncommon for sex abuse victims to come out 15, 20 years later. This is actually a fact. So when you look at cases like Wade Robson, Jimmy Safechuck, you don't just say, oh, well, five years. You have to, we all have to look at the exact facts from their own story. And, I mean, the Michael Jackson, uh, the anti-Michael Jackson people or haters, you know, they are actually aware themselves that sex abuse victims take many years to come out. And having, you know, being kind of like manipulated by your abuser is actually very common. But the way to figure out that these people are lying, like Wade and Jimmy, is based on facts about their own stories, not just because it's five years. Why five years and not four, three, two, one? Well, it's just when they decide. You know, it, for example, with Jimmy, it could be because it was a week after Escape was released. Or with Wade, it could be because it was two weeks after the MJ1 show. You know, timing can work in that regard. But we all have to focus on the facts. I just want to say that. It's not just because oh, no, it's five I, years I agree after. with you. I wasn't actually referring to the the accusers. I was re- answering the question about Stacey Brown writing this article five years later and why he would choose to do this now, I don't know. As far as the accusers coming out, whenever they've come out, they didn't only come out now. Wade Robeson came out, wasn't it a year or two ago already now that he started yeah, with his allegations? I mean, this wasn't. this isn't yeah. new with him. And, it you know, none was, of these allegations are particularly new. They've been floating around for years. Yeah, well, Wade, well, uh, if you look at transcripts, um, Wade claims to have had a breakdown two years ago and all this stuff. But if you look at the actual timing of it, it was like a week or two after, or maybe before, if I can correct myself here, before the MJ1 show that he wanted to be on and then was denied for. 
So I mean, if yeah, that's yeah, not no, like, I know okay, that. I know that, but that wasn't that was years ago. Yeah. You just, that's you not just five angry. years. That's what I'm saying. I was only answering the the question specifically about Stacy Brown writing something now, five years later, referring to what the maids had to say, who were Michael's uh, maids. Uh, as far as the accusers oh, are concerned. I, uh, I was into that article as well about how messy he was. That, honestly, I'm sorry, but that actually made me laugh. It was just so ridiculous. Yeah, he, he urinated in, his, in, in the foyer of his house. Yeah, I'm sure about that. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. They're just throwing everything they possibly can. So, you know, yeah. What's your take on that article, Matt? Oh, my take on it? Yes. Um, well, that article was interesting to me. I mean, I found it funny, like I said, but the thing is, Michael Jackson was messy and organized. There's pictures of his house all over the Internet. So, I mean, it's true that he had, like, a messy closet, messy bedroom, et cetera, you know, but that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that he went to the bathroom on his floor. And the thing is, if that was true, you'd think that at least one of those pictures of his house would show feces or urine on his floor oh, anywhere please, in the that's house. that's so ridiculous. But, uh, he had his children <laughs> there. We saw images of his entire house that was shown for quite a long time that the detectives um, had taken video of when they did the raid on Neverland. And nowhere and anywhere in all the images that we saw in court of that house, and that went on for quite some time, like I would say 45 minutes worth of recording, was there anything, anything that resembled that, that kind of mess or behavior or filth. It just didn't exist in his house. He had a house full of people who he had staff, I don't know how many staff. I think he employed fifty people on Neverland. Not you know, cleaning it, keeping the grounds, doing all of that. That that's just insane. It is, absolutely. I mean like like I was saying, like if you if you Google pictures of his house, both Neverland and the Havenhurst house, there is some mess. Like he's got clothes and papers around and that's fine. But nothing, absolutely not one picture shows any human waste whatsoever. And if that was true, you think that you, you really think you should see at least, at least one picture to prove it. But there isn't. Well, I, you know, again, this is this is where people like to do mudslinging after the fact. For what well, reason? Right. So that their name could be bantered around, which is, I guess, they're getting their wish because we are talking for some reason about Stacey Brown, who I don't feel has any true credentials, frankly. Tom Mesereau quoted it saying he doesn't consider Stacey Brown a real journalism or a real journalist, to quote him. Yeah, well, Absolutely. I happen, I happen well, to agree. Can't. Mr. King, sorry, I just wanted to mention one other thing. I've got a couple fans here wanting me to make a quick statement on the supposed Jimmy Safechuck and Michael Jackson wedding. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but it's one of Jimmy Safechuck's claims that he had a fake um, marriage for Jimmy. Of course, as usual, this has no backup. There's absolutely no pictures proof. There's no fake ring or fake wedding certificate. It's just, again, as you put it, um, Aphrodite, just mudslinging. Have you heard anything no. about this supposed wedding? No, I, I you know, there is there is something I have to say and I can't stay on much longer because it's very late for me in the East Coast time. I, I will yes. say this though. Um for every fan there is who loves Michael Jackson, there seems to be um somebody out there with doubts and questions and you know, 
just mudslinging and haters, whatever you want to call it. And yes. I, 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 you know, it is it is odd to me that Michael is still a polarizing figure um, in the world. I, I don't know why people want to hold on to, like I say, the negativity that haunted him in his life when he is now gone and has left a legacy of fantastic music and dance and, as you say, philanthropy and and goodness and concern about the planet. And to me, his ultimate message, you know, toward the end of his life was the Earth song and caring about the Earth and caring about us healing the Earth. And to me, that was one of the most important messages he ever gave. And he understood that just before he died. That was one of the last things he focused on. And to me, this is what I think people need to walk away with from his legacy and do something about and stop quibbling about all of this, to me, um, water under the bridge that's nonsense, that's ugh, talk about mudslinging and, and dirt slinging. And, and it's just, I, I don't understand... What about, you know, the messages that Michael had? What about healing the world? What about being as one? That doesn't matter to a lot of people, sadly. It's unfortunate, but that doesn't even matter to so many people. They just ignore it. What about looking in the mirror and making a change? What about the environment that's falling apart and that we only have maybe 15 or 20 years to fix before it can possibly go wrong forever? What about having a planet and a world that is as one that we can unify and try to save this planet. That was Michael's ultimate message. Can't we listen to that? Because if we don't, uh, you know, is, I have news the way, for you. What the music industry is now, it's not like that because they, the music industry wants to, wants to block out inspirational, well-meaning songs, and they want to push out, you know, what today they want to today they want to push out songs about sex and stuff they don't care about man in the mirror or earth song or anything like that they don't care but the, anymore but these the days. fans do and there's enough of us out there who can actually you know now take our energy and stop worrying about fighting off these ridiculous quirky bizarre allegations that are coming out of nowhere and take our energy and actually do what Michael asked us to do, which is to look at the earth and do something, look in the mirror and change something and do something that can make this world a a place that's safe for future, for the children, for the future, for the new generations, because we are destroying the planet. I mean, I study Michael's work, not just as uh, uh, enjoying the songs, but the the messages of his work, and that to me was his most powerful message. And it's in this is it in the film. He goes into it. You hear him talking about it when they're when they're going through Earth Song. He's it's it's very bold there, and uh, I mean, this is it. It says it all. We need we need to focus on the planet. We need to heal this world. Uh, environmentally yes, yes we, true and if we want 100%. to children to inherit an earth that's usable and clean and and good then we need to start fixing it so all of michael's fans and by the millions all around the world that should be the focus and and as much as i care about you know people looking at michael as understanding that he was persecuted prosecuted 
unjustly, and that's why I wrote that book, I, I really feel at this point we need to move beyond that and move into the message. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And Aphrodite, for joining us here tonight that. on this night for uh, Michael Jackson's birthday bash. Appreciate you coming on for a few minutes. Thank you so much, King Jordan. I appreciate it. Thank and you, Aphrodite. You're great. So much. You're great. You're great. You guys are great. It's still available, right? Yeah, the book is out on ebook, um, Michael Jackson Conspiracy. I put it on ebook for the first time ever. And it actually hit the New York Times list last week at number 20. So Michael Jackson fans are out there, and they are reading it, and that's fantastic. And um, I never have had I, – I don't have many e-books. I'm, I'm a little behind the times when it comes to that. So it's taking me all this time to actually get that <laughs> book into e-book. But it's finally it's there, and, and people can download it for $4.99 or something and, and uh, read the truth. So – if, if that's yeah, something, yeah. If that's something people want to do, I'm happy. But I really, as I said, my bigger thing is at this point, listen to his message. Let's do something that's about right, saving everybody. this planet. Change the world. Make it a better no, place. No, really, and I mean it. I'm not saying it in platitudes. I mean, really do something. Really look in no, the I'm mirror. Just, and really do something. Honestly, take the words, not just the song itself. Take the words that are saying. Yeah, and do it. Do it. That's right. Do it. Okay, guys. Okay. Thanks so much. Have a good one. You too. Okay. Yeah. All right. Hey, George, hang on a second, Matt. Yes, we are going um, to sorry, go to uh, Yes, we're going to we, go to a uh, song... Um, by uh, Nicole and Scotty. The uh, let's see here, Nicole and Scotty. They are being told of. Uh, Can I just sign off? We got and say bye. <laughs> I just want to say thank you, everybody who came up. I am a YouTube ranter and Michael Jackson advocate. You can check me out anytime. Matt F T R M A T T S F T R on YouTube. Thank you so much, Jordan. You got it, Matt. Okay, we are going to go uh, uh, going to have a live uh, edition now. I think it's going to work. We tried it earlier. Let's see if it works. This is Nicole and Scotty, and uh, they are part of uh, Unchained Waters, I believe. So I'm not saying it right, but uh, let's take a listen. You are not alone. Hi, my name is Nicole. I'm Scotty. And we're very proud and honored to be singing Michael Jackson's beautiful masterpiece, You Are Not Alone, in honor of his 56th birthday on King Jordan Radio.
And uh, you can listen with uh, Lisa Marie Presley. Yes, uh, I'm a humongous fan of Lisa Presley. I've listened to her music since I was six years old, and I love her just as much as I love Michael. And uh, she, I guess she watched our videos on YouTube last year, and because people were sending them to her on her Facebook, then we went to a concert of hers a month later in L.A., and she recognized Scotty and I in the audience, and she got all excited, and she asked us to come up on stage with her, and we did. And we performed a song with her then, and then we performed another song with her a month later by invitation. And it was the best moments of our lives spent with her. So it was really incredible. How was it for you, Scotty, that experience? It was an incredible experience, and I just couldn't believe it that she actually got to, we actually got to perform with her. I just couldn't believe it. It blew me away. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, uh, so, uh, what is the next song that you guys are going to do, or, uh, you thinking about doing? Um, we haven't decided yet. We've been thinking about maybe covering Place With No Name, or something off of Escape. Mm-hmm. And Place With No our, Name, yes. Yeah, That's and our newest debut album is out, so we're working on writing more for a full-length album of originals. That is awesome. And, uh, again, your CD is available. Uh, I believe you said, where where can you get it? Uh, You can buy it on over 40 music stores, such as Amazon, iTunes, CD Baby. We have our own website, www.NicoleAndScottyUnchartedWaters.com. And um, you could buy the physical copy there. The digital download is $0.99, cents and the physical album is $10. Well, thank you, guys. It was a pleasure having you on the Michael Jackson Birthday Bash. Thank you very much. Thank it was an honor to be on. Thank you so much for inviting us and hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. And we loved listening to the entire show. It was great. Awesome, and uh, thanks a lot. And uh, thank you to you MJ fans. Uh, It was a great Michael Jackson birthday bash. And uh, let me leave you with uh, loving you, courtesy of the Escape album. And uh, I believe I have that queued up. Thinking of it in the stars, I'm no more. If it's cloudy, 
all of a sudden he gets up and he's like, I'll be right back, you know what I'm saying? Like, he just got up, like, so the, the sheik was like, oh, he's leaving, he's going to his shit. Yo, not even 10 minutes later, Michael Jackson came back, my nigga, like, the whole glittered outfit, like, the gloves, like, yo, it was Michael fucking Jackson. <laughs> so, all of a sudden, uh, John Legend manager finally gets there, so... Jalaja like came like 30 minutes later, so the sheik was like, "Yo, this is the dinner table, and there's two other tables." Tyson stayed over there because there was only one table open, one chair open. So Mike Jackson was like, "Yo, where's who kid? Who kid? Come on, still there?" But John Legend was like, <laughs> John Legend wanted to sit there." Uh, like, hold yo. on, hold on. Michael Jackson chose you over my John Legend. Yeah, because the sheik. No. sheik. I John Legend if you ever meet him. So then Michael Jackson was like, "Yo, come here, who kid? Come on, man, sit over there, yo." So I come over there, I'm like, yo, you serious, yo, I'm going over there, yo. So I go over there, I sit over there, and then the, the Indian uh, slave or whatever came with the fucking, <laughs> the Indian slave came with the, uh, it was a pork, I was like, it was pork, yo, are we, are we Muslims, yo, what's going on here? But no, nah, it was lamb. Oh. But it was like a big lamb ass. A big ass lamb. So I was like, yo, this is the biggest lamb ass ever. And Mike was like, ha ha, like, crazy, yo. And they laughing at shit, right? At that time, they're saying they're confiscating his ranch, his uh, Neverland ranch. Mm-hmm. He was like, fuck that place, yo. I don't give a fuck about that shit. I was like, <laughs> yo, it was like the illest shit. And, it, you know, I guess so much white people talk to him so much, they talk to him like a baby because everybody's like, yo, Mike, oh, your pampers are wet. Oh. Like, they talk to him like that. So that's why he's like, you know. So I'm like, yo, what up, kid? Yo, you hell, yo. So, and then when it's over, yo, all I know is he stood around for like three hours, hung out with us, took photos. I got like 100 photos. Tyson Beverly was like, yo, I don't care. This is the only opportunity I got. I'm going to battle you in a break dance. And we're in a desert. So Michael Jackson goes outside with Tyson Beverly and they just start like, yeah. going in. It's like, a scene. So Michael's like, I ain't going to do all that, you know? I don't really. So Mike gets, ah! Mike gets Tyson to the lead, like, the, the criminal shit. Like, right. Move like, criminal, like. <laughs> <laughs>